Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us today uh, for this meaningful event uh, for Apollo 11 moon landing and Vikings Mars landing anniversaries. Uh, today we have four distinguished speakers on very uh, exciting topics. So please uh, join, uh, enjoy, and have fun. And uh, just a few words, actually all our section meetings like this, e-tango meetings are also network events. Unfortunately, this is on, uh, online, but uh, you can still benefit from the chatting room uh, to interact with each other and the speakers. And uh, just a few words about the uh, uh, junk, junk mail, spam mails. Uh, if you are on our mailing list, you should receive our regular notices. If not, please check your spam folder, junk folder, and pull them out uh, or ask your IT department to change the setting. Or if they delete it automatically, please provide an alternative email so our email can reach you. Uh, really appreciate our AIWA headquarters uh, who provided this great uh, Zoom platform and all the support they have for our uh, activities. Uh, if any anyone got disconnected due to internet connection issue, please keep trying to connect. Uh, it should be resolved right away. If your internet Wi-Fi bandwidth is not very stable or limited, uh, please use the dial-in instead of uh, the internet video uh, audio. And you can still use the Wi-Fi for uh, the video, but uh, you can use dial-in for the audio. Please try to use your real name as sign in so people can recognize you. But if you don't want to share, then uh, don't chat, nobody knows that you are here. Uh, so again, if you want to chat, please type in your chat box. But if you have a question, please put it in the Q&A box. Uh, more toward the end of presentation uh, of each one uh, will enable you. If you click raise hand, you will be able to speak up. Also, please don't talk about any sensitive personal or business information for security, even though Zoom has improved a lot for security and privacy issues. Just a few words about Southern California. Uh, we are really, really blessed uh, for this uh, highly intensive aerospace activities here. Uh, the James Webb Space Telescope from North of Roman, Defense, uh, JPL, uh, the exciting SpaceX, and Virgin Galactic, uh, Virgin Orbit, Aerospace Corporation, uh, and uh, you know many interesting things, and also many things uh, like the 3D printed rockets, uh, relativity space, launcher space, more 3D, and hybrid aircraft, uh, flying cars like uh, Ampere, and also many great companies, uh, Boeing, Honeywell, Raytheon, LG, Rocky, Rocky Mountain. Uh, we keep doing this event so uh, people can network together. Uh, have fun, you know, know each other. That's the main point, you know, is every other way keep everybody together, move and move forward. Uh, August 14, we'll have the Space Velocity Gathering event. And August 21st, we celebrate the Women's Equality Day with the AWA professional, uh, Women Professional event, led by our AWA fellow, uh, Miss Mary Wheaton from Aerospace Corporation. And we also have happy hours like July uh, 20th, and this is great month. We have virtual uh, event on our elevator center that's like this moon based opera virtually on Davis Crater, the moon. It's very exciting. Uh, July, you have Richard Branson, Jeff Bezos, you know, those kind of things. And also the great uh, Apollo 11, Viking, many things. And uh, July 30th, uh, 30, 31st, and we have Professor Khan from India. So we once in a while have speaker from around the world, attendees around the world uh, all the time. Uh, 
So uh, it's a great opportunity to learn what's going on in the world. Uh, also, Kong is actually the leader in the world of lighter than air uh, development. And uh, we also have uh, new set opportunities. Uh, so you're welcome to participate. Uh, sorry, I'm kind of doing this a little bit slowly because I want to wait more people to join. So I didn't intend to delay the program. Uh, so newsletter is a great opportunity for people to show uh, your hobby, photography, or professional articles, or uh, things like that. For this, for example, this one in May, we posted uh, the news about unfortunately for astronaut Michael Collins. We also have post videos on, on, on our YouTube podcast, if permitted, from the speakers and their organization. So if you're a member of AIAA, you got many great benefits. You really start to share. Uh, in case you can talk to other members, professionals around the world. And uh, in daily, you can get the insider news. Uh, it's called AIW Daily Launch. And Aerospace America magazine is highly regarded. It's very exciting. Uh, you can get it free for electronic version. And uh, you really enjoy great discount for uh, going to conferences. And AIW have five major conferences where it's all very exciting. The one most related to space is ASCEND uh, in November, uh, is to continue our uh, flagship space conference previously. So AWA has a uh, different level of membership uh, is to promote the aerospace activities. Uh, so you can see there are different levels. Student, high school membership is free, educator is free. And the young professional is actually should be called early, early career professional because they're actually professionals after universities and under 35 years old. And it's half price right now, greatest discount. And uh, the best way is to email here, cutserve.org, or just give them a call. It's very fast right away. But, but if any question, you know, we are, I'm very happy to answer. We are very happy to answer. Uh, this high school membership, just very easily. And uh, different level membership, you can advance your levels. It, it, these are highly, highly regarded, very prestigious. Uh, for example, our section chair, Dr. Jeff Michelle, is our AWA fellow, Miss Mary Wheaton, and uh, the president of Aerospace Corporation, Mr. Steve Isakovich. And uh, also many great names, Dr. Dan Raymer, Dr. Uh, Martin Bradley, Dr. Henry Garrett. And honorary fellow like uh, uh, SpaceX, well known, uh, our uh, um, Gui Shapwell is uh, honorary fellow and former uh, Air Force uh, Tour Star General, Ellen Polikowski. Of course, Buzz, Buzz, Sanil, uh, with us. And uh, also uh, Gersenmeyer, Bill Gersenmeyer is uh, with us right now. And uh, you can honor your, yourself, our people to nominate for different level of contributions. So we keep doing events just quickly uh, overview. Uh, this is a fine, so we might develop India and uh, Tuskegee Airman. Uh, with even with their family and great gathering, which is fantastic. And uh, we have planetary defense workshop, and uh, uh, these are all distinguished speakers. Uh, it's uh, from every JPL director, uh, John Hopkins, uh, very exciting. And Aerospace Corporation also developed very great uh, uh, workshop to help people uh, learn how to use the Neo Diffraction app and also help people understand more about the threats uh, from Astro or near Earth object. Uh, very good STEM outreach for, for any general public. And we have uh, also people talking about materials in extreme space environment and also ANSYS, the computer uh, simulation company, which has acquired AGI SDK and the Phoenix uh, integration for uh, model-based system engineering. Very important step for aerospace. 
So our first distinguished speaker was, uh, is Dr. Jennifer Rasnazar, is a historian from NASA Johnson Space Center. Uh, she's uh, <clears throat> in his position, in this position, she provides reference assistance to NASA and the public and has shared her expertise with journalists, writers, broadcasting agencies, documentarians, and many others. She was awarded her PhD from Washington State University, master's in history from New Mexico State University, and bachelor in history and political science from the University of Arizona. Of being a scholar of NASA history and women's history. She has been featured as a subject matter expert in several documentaries. Uh, she's also an accomplished oral historian and author, and authored many publications. In 2015, the Texas State Historical Association awarded the least competent award for research to Texas women, their his histories, their lives, a book containing her chapter on May Jimison, the first female astron astronaut of Congress. In 2012, Jennifer was awarded the Charles Thompson Prize from the Society of History in the federal government for her chapter focusing on shuttle accident in NASA's wings in orbit, scientific and engineering legacies of the space shuttle. Her essay, You Have Come a Long Way, Maybe, the first six women astronauts and the, the media was included <clears throat> uh, in Space Bearers, image of, uh, images of astronauts and cosmos in the erotic area of space flight in 2013 and noted as fascinating and in-depth study on how the first group of NASA women uh, dealt with the still occasionally sexist media. For this work, she received her second Thompson Prize in three years. In 2011, he published her first book, Winning the West for Women, a biography of suffragist Emma Smith DeVoe. The same year, she was recognized by NASA headquarters for her outstanding work as historian for the agency. Her latest manuscript, Making Space for Women, uh, focused on the history of Johnson Space Center through the experience of its female employees and will be published uh, this fall through Texas and Press. As you can see on the right hand side, the book covers. Very exciting. And just a quick note, uh, Boy, as mentioned, on August 21st, uh, we'll have Aerospace Women Professional Event. This is to celebrate Women's Equality Day, uh, which is August 26th. So without further ado, uh, let's welcome Dr. Uh, Jennifer Rosenthal. So our next speaker is Professor Paul, Paul Ronnie is an astronaut. Uh, professor Rani is the professor and chair in the Department of Aerospace and Mechanical Engineering at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. He received a Bachelor of Science degree in Mechanical Engineering from the <coughs> UC Berkeley and a Master of Science degree in Aeronautics from the California Institute of Technology and Doctor of Science degree in Aeronautics and Astronautics from MIT. He held postdoctoral appointments at the NASA Lewis, now Glenn Research Center at the Laboratory for Computational Physics at the US Naval Research Laboratory and the position as an assistant professor in the Department of Mechanical Engineering Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering 
at Princeton University before assuming his current position at USC. He was the panel specialist astronaut uh, for Space Shuttle mission MSL-1 STS-83 uh, from April 4 to April 8, 1997, and the refly of this mission STS-94 from July 1st to July 16, 1997. He has extensive research experience in small-scale combustion and power generation, turbulent combustion, frame ignition by transient plasma discharge, micro-scale combustion, bioengineering, robotic insect propulsion, insect frames, uh, frame propulsion, uh, sorry, frame propagation in confined geometries, uh, Heller-Shaw cells, internal combustion engines, pre-mixed gas combustion at microgravity and the frame spread over solid fuel beds. One of his experiments, a study of pre-mixed gas frames at low gravity flew on three space shuttle missions. He has published over 80 technical papers in peer-reviewed journals, made over 250 technical presentations, including over 35 invited presentations at international conferences all seven U.S. patents and has received over $12 million in funding for his research project. In recognition of his achievement, he is a fellow of the American Society of Mercury Engineers and the Combustion Institute and an associate fellow of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics and is a recipient of the National Science Foundation Presidential Young Investigator Award. He has received the Distinguished Paper Award from the Combustion Institute for work published in the Proceedings of the Combustion Institute, Volume 37, and the Study Premium Award of the Institution of Mechanical Engineers for the best paper of the year published in the Journal of Automobile Engineering. So let's welcome uh, Professor Paul Ronnie. All right, uh, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, great. Uh, so thank you, uh, Ken, for this uh, opportunity. And uh, thanks to Jennifer for a wonderful presentation about the life of Michael Collins. Um, I'm sorry that I was on a camp. As it turns out, I accepted this uh, invitation and then a camping trip was rescheduled during this time. Fortunately, I was able to drive to a place where I could, I'm over in Sequoia National Park. Those aren't sequoias behind me, but uh, in Sequoia National Park and uh, found a spot uh, overlooking the Central Valley where I could get uh, uh, decent uh, 4G coverage so that I could uh, participate today. Uh, let me see if I can share my screen for my presentation. That works. Okay, can you see that? Yes. Okay, great. Okay, so uh, first of all, I have to uh, add a couple of qualifiers to this presentation. I, I am an astronaut in NASA's definition of an astronaut is that if you look at astronaut biographies, they say so-and-so was selected in such and such a year and became an astronaut in such and such a year. And that is not when they flew in space and uh, exceeded the von Karman 
line, but actually when they completed their uh, training. So uh, I was an alternate payload specialist uh, astronaut for two uh, missions back in 1997, uh, but I didn't actually fly in space. So I've been through all the training. And so by NASA's definition uh, that, that I do qualify as an astronaut. So I wanted to mention that. And also I have to mention that my experience is now quite, you know, as, as a number of years ago. So, um, so everything I have to say has to be qualified in that context, but I've tried to frame it in such a way that I think most of what I'm going to say, even though it's based on my experience from a long time ago, I think a lot of it still applies now, at least I hope so. And again, I'd like to thank uh, the AIAA uh, Los Angeles, Las Vegas chapter for this opportunity. And uh, feel free to interrupt me, by the way, uh, feel free to interrupt me along the way with any questions you might have. I don't mind being interrupted in the middle. I just have, I think, uh, 12 slides or so. So I should have no trouble getting through uh, what I have to say in the time available. All right, so first let me say just a little bit of myself. Uh, uh, Ken has said most of this. So uh, let me just say that uh, I'm also, my daytime job is as uh, professor, now chairman of uh, Aerospace and Mechanical Engineering Department uh, at USC. Uh, you know about my background and research. Uh, doing, I had experiments flown on three space shuttle missions the two that I was a backup for, and then STS-107, which of course was the last Columbia mission, the one that uh, burned up on reentry. As it turns out, because I've been the backup on the previous missions, under a slightly different set of circumstances, I would have actually been on that flight. At the time, I was disappointed that those circumstances didn't work out, so I wasn't able to fly on STS-107, but as we all know, that was a good day to stay home. Um, so, as you can see, the lower right picture, let me see if I can get a laser pointer here. Uh, okay, yeah. So, okay, so that's a recent picture of me. This is me from uh, taken in 1996. And it was, you know, so that's 25 years ago. So, yeah, okay, yeah, I'm a little older, but, and I still have my COVID hair, haven't cut it yet. Um, as, um, my daughter is really into horses, so I've gotten into horses too. I call Cavalier here my executive vice chair uh, of the Aerospace Mechanical Engineering Department. And this is where I was uh, back on Wednesday. Okay, so on to the uh, meat of the presentation. First of all, what are the types of astronauts? Really, as I see it, there are four types. There are the pilots, and some of this sort of, again, dates back to the shuttle era, which is long gone, but a lot of it still applies. There are pilots that are responsible for uh, the launch, landing, and on-orbit operation of the vehicle, whether it be the space shuttle or um, Dragon capsule, or whatever, uh, chosen by NASA uh, Astronaut Selection Board, and most of them are military pilots. There are mission specialists who are responsible for payload operations, science experiments, spacewalks, or, um, or stays on the uh, space station, and again, chosen by NASA's Astronaut Selection Board. And then there are payload specialists, which is a category that first came about during the Skylab era. I believe the first payload specialist ever was by, uh, Byron Lichtenberg on STS-9, the first space lab mission. Uh, and they're chosen because of their particular scientific or engineering uh, need on a particular flight. And let's see if I can move this, excuse me for just one second here. That doesn't look like I can do that. Um, okay. Um, or in some cases, actually, by for political means. For example, a Saudi Arabian prince was flown uh, pre a Challenger uh, on a, a space shuttle flight, and um, 
Other examples is Alain Ramon, who was on STS-107. He was chosen because we had flown a Saudi Arabian prince and President Clinton at the time said, well, we have to have parity here. So we have the um, Arab side, we have to have the Israeli side. We need to fly an Israeli astronaut. The Israelis chose Ilan Ramon, who was uh, uh, actually a military um, fighter pilot uh, and became the first Israeli um, astronaut. Unfortunately, of course, was lost with the rest of the Columbia crew. John Glenn was another uh, uh, payload specialist. Myself, again, as an um, alternate, and I'll get more into that in a bit. Uh, so these are not present on most flights, and the, but they might become more common. It occurred to me, people who might be considered payload specialists uh, will become more common as, you know, manned commercial space flights become more common. We'll see, but that remains to be seen. And now, of course, the other category that's becoming more and more common uh, are paying passengers. So let me just talk about uh, mission specialists and payload specialists and my personal experience. Okay, so in 1990, I reached the uh, interview stage for the uh, astronaut class of 1990. Uh, and there were about 100 people interviewed in um, five groups of about 20 each. You get to know those 20 people pretty well. It's a week-long process. Uh, there are very, I don't need to get any details, very thorough medical and psychological exams, but it's really a pass-fail criteria. It's not like they pick the best athlete or the pe person with the most, you know, with the fewest little, you know, um, you know, red marks on their uh, medical record. It's really more of a pass-fail criteria. Um, then you have, um, also you get to go on some cool tours. Uh, you get one interview with the selection board itself. And then there's also with a social event, which you aren't required to go to, but basically you are required to go to. And you meet with uh, the selection board and other astronauts who choose to attend. You're also expected to meet with other astronauts um, at the time who are not part of the selection board, but are just in their offices doing their jobs and meet with them because you know they will then report back to the selection board. Oh yeah, I met Paul and oh, he seemed like a nice guy or oh, he didn't seem to know what was going on or, or whatever. Um, now, one question that comes up is, and, and this occurred to me is, many of those who reach the interview process, I'm gonna say maybe probably 80 out of 100 of those people who reach the interview process are perfectly qualified for the job. So. How do you choose? How, how does the astronaut selection board choose out of those 80 people, about 20 or I think maybe 23 were selected uh, that year, including my dear friend, uh, uh, now departed Janice Voss. Um, <clears throat> many of them, you know, how do they choose? And I'll, I'll get into that uh, in, in a bit. Uh, then there's the other category of payload specialist that I mentioned, which I was also part of. Now, the way that I got into the payload specialist program was that there were uh, four combustion experiments manifested for STS-83, which was the Space Lab Mission uh, MSL Microgravity Science Laboratory 1, um, including my experiment. And so NASA approved, you know, the, the principal investigators requested and, and NASA approved a uh, payload combustion payload specialist for that. So when that, you know, went out, of course, my hand went up. Um, there was also a payload specialist for the materials science because there were quite a few materials science uh, experiments in that uh, space lab mission. So I was interviewed by the selection committee appointed by the uh, um, mission scientist who was um, Mike Robinson at uh, Huntsville, at NASA Huntsville. Um, and I was chosen not as the prime, but as the backup as the alternate payload specialist for combustion. As it turned out, the 
alternate for the materials position, he dropped out. And so I became the backup actually for both, which, you know, people said, oh, he's not going to want to train for both. I said, well, I'm fine with that. That gives me twice as many opportunities in case some mysterious accident or illness would uh, happen to one of the prime payload specialists, either in combustion or material science. Although I'm not a material, I'm a combustion scientist, not a material scientist. You know, there are some similarities. And so I felt qualified to, uh, to run those experiments. So um, how does one improve one's chances? And this is based on my experience in both with the uh, mission specialist selection, which I was not selected, or for the payload specialist, um, which again, I was selected, uh, but as the uh, alternate. I would say the ideal candidate, and I've said this to many people, and I've actually been successful, like um, just shortly before Jennifer Seide, Canadian uh, astronaut, before she went for her interviews, I, I had met with her, she gave a seminar at USC and we talked about this and guess what, boom, uh, she was selected. Uh, I like to think I may have played a small part in that. Uh, so first of all, you should have a PhD in a science or engineering field. This exact field isn't that important. They're not looking for stellar academicians. They're looking for people who have accomplished, you know, what it takes to persevere and see your way through a PhD program. Uh, military aviation experience is, I think, extremely useful. And even if you're not qualified as a pilot, maybe because of your vision isn't good enough, but even if you're a backseater, you know, communications, weapons officer, that sort of thing, you know, all that uh, aviation experience, I think, is extremely useful. Uh, and operational experience. Of course, military aviation is one of many examples of operational experience. Um, that is, you don't just sit, you know, maybe if you're the most accomplished person in the world in some field that's very relevant to um, what an astronaut does. But if you've done that all sitting behind a desk, I think that's, you're going to be less qualified for that. For example, during my interview for the mission specialist position, I was asked if I had any uh, emergency situations I'd put on my uh, application that I had a private pilot's license. I was asked if I had any emergency situations there. Uh, I also mentioned that I'd done a lot of mountaineering and I asked, they asked me if I had any you know, emergency type of situations and that. So they're looking for that kind of operational experience, whether it's sort of within your profession or even outside your professional activities, just in your personal activities. Civil service uh, experience, I think is, um, is very useful because you know, as an astronaut, you are a civil servant. And it comes with all the benefits and uh, uh, challenges associated with that. And you say, well, what civil service position? Uh, the best one is an astronaut trainer. You know, quite a few, not to say quite a few, but a number of astronaut trainers have become selected as astronauts themselves. And why is that? Well, who selects the astronauts? Well, current astronauts. And who do the current astronauts know very well and spend a lot of time with besides other current astronauts? The astronaut trainers. So you get to be known by those people. And uh, let's say a number of people have been selected um, through that uh, process. Um, also, you need to show some aptitude as a team player. And this is where I think I lost out. Think about as an academician, as a, as a faculty member, no faculty member was ever chosen because they were thought to be a good team player. They were thought they were chosen because they were thought to be an outstanding individual, right? And that's not what uh, the astronaut corps is looking for. Like, for example, one very telling um, question I was, I also put on my resume that I was, you know, captain of our intramural uh, at MIT of our uh, department's intramural ice hockey team. 
you know, nothing special really, but, uh, you know, I really like playing ice hockey. And they said, well, why do you like to play ice hockey? And I said, well, I like the speed and the skill that's required in the contact and, and all that, and all the excitement, yada, yada. After the um, interview, I realized the right answer would have been, I like the teamwork, right? So almost, for almost any other position other than being a faculty member, you always want to talk about your ability as a team player. Even if you're going to interviewing for a position as a lighthouse keeper or a forest fire lookout where you're on your own all the time, you want to say, I'm a good team player. Okay. Also, I think what's useful is to have some sort of little special thing. I call it a shtick gimmick. Something just kind of makes you stand out in your personal life. I can think of a couple examples like uh, Ellen Ochoa was a concert pianist um, or uh, Dave Brown had been before he became an astronaut had been a, I mean, sometime in the past before he'd been a, uh, uh, become an astronaut, he had been a uh, circus acrobat. Or like even on the missions I was a backup to, Mike Gernhardt had been a commercial uh, deep sea diver, you know, on oil platforms. It was interesting to hear his stories about that. So he said there was a lot, you know, that was a lot harder than doing spacewalks, you know, doing the, um, doing the underwater uh, work that uh, they did uh, on oil platforms. Also, I remember being asked a couple of oddball questions. I guess I would just want to see how you react to very odd, strange situations. Uh, one was, uh, are we doing enough to combat the drug problem in this country? And I kind of, um, um, I kind of maybe kind of fumbled my way through that question. I said, well, yeah, I think we, we you know, we can never do enough. And, uh, uh, but I think we need to eliminate not the supply, but the demand. We need to reduce the demand within the U.S. Okay, maybe came up with some sort of a semi-viable answer. And then I was also asked, uh, when you curl up at night with a good book, what do you like to read? And I just read, just by coincidence, a friend of mine had given me this book uh, called The Rivers Ran East by Leonard Clark. It was about his expeditions uh, right after World War II in the Amazon looking for the lost cities of El Dorado. So I said, well, I like to read books like that, adventure books. That was probably a good answer. Still didn't get picked, but... Uh, however, maybe this is the most important thing I can say about this whole talk. My disclaimer is that even if you do everything perfectly, uh, even if you check all these boxes, the chances are 99.8, and if you play your politics perfectly, uh, chances are 99.9% .9 that you won't get selected. So you better choose a career path that you really enjoy doing. If you're doing all these things just because you think it's going to improve your chances of being selected and you really didn't want to do those things, you're going to really have an unhappy career. So keep that in mind. Uh, let me give you an example of one person who was in my interview group for the mission specialist program back in we were interviewed in 1989. They were announced in 1990. Uh, Tom Jones. Tom Jones had uh, gone to the Air Force Academy. Uh, he then flew B-52s for six years or so. Then when he left the military, he had a um, uh, desk job, or sorry, then he got a PhD in astronomy from I think uh, University of Arizona or Arizona State. And then he had a desk job with the CIA you know, civil service position, not, not a spy, but someone who like monitors, uh, you know, uh, satellite, you know, uh, spy satellite uh, contracts, etc. So he kind of had everything. He had the military experience, the flight experience, the civil service experience, the academic, he kind of had it all. He was one of, uh, for my group, I picked four people who I thought were going to get selected. Uh, Tom Jones, um, Rick Searfoss, 
um, Jim Halsell, who by coincidence being the commander of the mission that I trained for, and uh, Scott Horowitz. Uh, Scott was the only one of the four that didn't get selected, but he got selected two years later in the next round. So at least I, I think that I had, at least based on the culture at that time, I had learned what was, uh, uh, what was expected. And I didn't expect that I was going to get selected because of what I just said, that you know, my whole background is all about being you know, the one in charge, the one in control, the, the top dog, not being a team player. And I'm sure little things like that came out. Okay, now I'd like to um, discuss you know, the training itself. So there are basically two types of training. There's the orbiter at the time when we were doing space shuttle. There's that related to the spacecraft itself. You know, there's a launch and entry using the launch and entry suits, living in space um, and uh, eating in space and all of those things associated with the orbiter. Also things like uh, we spent a lot of time, I, I'm really, you know, you can say I'm in the outdoors here. I'm really obsessed with you know, nature and with earth, earth observation. So I actually spent a lot of um, my time, you know, when I wasn't doing training that it was absolutely required, but I could squeeze in some extra training. I really wanted to learn more about earth observation, how to take pictures of the earth from space, and then how to, um, and, and then uh, learning to know what to take pictures of that people on the ground would be interested in hearing about. Actually, after the mission, after the July mission, I asked the, uh, the crew, well, why did you take so many pictures of the Middle East? And Roger Crouch, one of the people I was back up to said, that's the only part of the earth that isn't covered with clouds in July. Although sometimes cloud patterns can be very uh, interesting as well. Um, also, you learn about uh, media appearances. One thing I remember from the media appearances is never put your hands up above your head. Always keep, you can use your hands to gesture, but don't put your hands up above your head bit like that. Um, and then there's payload related training. In my case, the payload was uh, the space lab mission. And the, uh, you have to learn first about all the experiments, the science background, the procedures and schedules. We spent a lot of time going through the procedures and actually rewrite, helping the, um, the experiment teams to rewrite their procedures to make them clearer um, for, uh, for the crew to use. And sometimes even finding little um, uh, things that they had overlooked. Like I remember on one experiment, there was to, to um, photograph a droplet combustion. There was a little fuel droplet suspended on a wire. And you had to then put a scale before you actually did the experiment. You put a scale inside the test chamber with a ruler on it. And, and then you took it out and then you put the the test apparatus in itself in the same position without moving the camera so that you didn't know what the scale was when you saw the droplet or saw the flame surrounding the droplet, you know what the scale was. Uh, but then I noticed that there had never been anything in the procedure to say, uh, record, the, record the ruler, you know? <laughs> so I, um, the, the trainer didn't really, wasn't a scientist, didn't really understand. So then I finally called the, the project scientist, and I said, Veda, the person I knew very well, I said, hey, Veda, look, you got to add this line of the procedure to take some video of the scale before you take it out and put the experiment apparatus. And he said, oh, yeah, of course. And so we actually did a lot, a lot of what I found that the astronauts did that was useful wasn't just what they did in space. 
It was what they did based on their training on the ground and their experience on the ground. Like we, I've flown many, many times on the KC-135, not as part of the training, but as part of doing experiments in the lead up to my own experiment. Uh, we'd flown on the uh, KC-135 many times. And a lot of sort of the operational things that we learned that carried over, I think, into the, um, into writing procedure, helping the, um, ask the experiment teams write and refine and modify their procedures. Uh, also doing, um, doing the uh, experiments themselves, of course, and on-orbit repairs as needed. Although 90% of the on-orbit repair procedures are simply the same things you do at home. What do you do when something like if my phone here, there's no Wi-Fi here, so I have to connect a tether through my phone. And you know, so what, if there's anything wrong with your phone, what's the first thing you do? You restart, right? So it's the same thing you know, in space. You basically power down systematically, you know, and then power back up systematically. And that's 90% of the on-orbit repair procedures. The one thing I will say about the whole process is that, um, uh, is that I would say it's straightforward. Now, many of you probably saw the movie, read the book, uh, The Right Stuff, about all the, how harsh the training was. I talked to one of the original seven uh, Mercury astronauts who said they spun him up to 12 Gs in the centrifuge. He said he was black and blue for, for weeks after that. Um, but it was not like that at all. Um, it was really much more straightforward. I, um, by far the toughest part was all the travel. This was back in 1996, 1997, before everybody had a cell phone, before um, every rental car and airline and hotel was online. So I spent many, many hours because the schedule was always uh, changing. The training schedule was always changing because either some you know, simulator would break or some crew that was closer to launch but higher priority would bump us for a particular simulator or you know, somebody got sick or whatever. The schedule was always changing. So I was always um, changing and remaking uh, travel arrangements. So I spent hours and hours and hours tethered to a payphone at an airport going back some time. Um, you know, making and changing all these reservations um, and not being the mission specialists, they had the opportunity to um, fly backseat in a T-38. They basically had a T-38 taxi if they weren't pilots themselves that um, Jim Halsell was the commander and Susan Still was the pilot. So of course they could fly themselves. And then for the mission specialists who were um, Mike Gernhardt, um, Janice Voss and um, um, uh, just a second. Darn, why can't I think of Crouch? No, no, he is a payload specialist. Greg Lynn and Roger Crouch were the um, Don Thomas. Don Thomas was a third mission specialist. Um, and then uh, Greg Lynn was a combustion payload specialist, and Roger Crouch was the uh, materials payload specialist. Um, but like I say, so all of us, you know, the, the two of us, or the three of us, uh, the mission payload specialists, had to fly commercial everywhere. And that was, that was actually pretty draining. Um, now, one of the best parts, Roger Crouch in particular, was very good about relaying the whole experience to me. Um, and um, uh, he said, well, the first thing is, you know, he was a scientist himself, of course. And he said, you know, I, I know all the principal investigators. He's been actually... Um, uh, head of the microgravity science division in NASA headquarters. So he had basically been select, responsible for selecting essentially all the experiments on that flight. 
And he said, you know, I know people have been working on these things and I've asked these questions for years. And until you push that button, you really don't know what's going to happen. And you're the first you're the person who gets to push the button and you're the first person that gets to see what happens. And he actually did my first experiment and it just completely blew me away. I was just stunned. I mean, that's a whole nother uh, uh, talk, you know, about what my experiment was and what happened as a result. Uh, but yeah, it was completely unlike anything I had expected to happen, which is a good thing, really, because if you do an experiment and you just get the result that you expected, well, what new thing did you learn? You just were able to reconfirm what you already thought you knew. And then the other thing Roger Crouch said is, he said, you know, the first time you look out the window, it's like the first time you peer over the rim of the Grand Canyon or turn the corner uh, and see Yosemite Valley for the first time. No matter how many pictures you've seen of it, it doesn't prepare you for the real thing. Um, and uh, I think everybody comes back a little bit uh, changed from, uh, from that experience. Okay, so in terms of the classroom training, these are very old pictures, but I intentionally use these old pictures because these are the ones that I used back when, when I was uh, going through the program. This classroom training mentioned, you know, shuttle equipment and operations, communications, emergency procedures, I'll show you a little video on that, um, photography and so on. And I love this picture of uh, the eating M&Ms with the window in the back, uh, window out into space in the background. Then there's also living in space, you know, eating in space. Every crew has to bring back some video of playing with their food in space. And yes, the space shuttle toilet. One thing I heard about the space shuttle toilet, it works very well, but it doesn't work perfectly. I don't think I need to say any more. Okay. And then for certain, not for payload specialists, but for at least two uh, mission specialists, on each flight. They were trained for, uh, for an EVA, an emergency. In this case, there were no scheduled uh, EVAs, but if there was some sort of emergency, particularly if the payload bay doors wouldn't close uh, when it was time to come home, then uh, Don Thomas and um, Mike Gernhardt would then do an EVA to try to uh, fix the problem. And we all did flight training. Uh, we all got uh, one flight in the back seat of a T-38. And after, of course, you have to go through like ejection uh, seat training and uh, water rescue training. We, we for example, you see in the center picture, uh, they basically do parasailing, you know, take you out in a boat and then send you up. And then when the instructor waves his flags, you release and you come down, land in the water and then get picked up by a helicopter. One thing to remember about that, I still remember about that training, is that you must let the cable comes down, touch the water before you grab it. Because the static electricity, there can be a very high voltage difference between the two. And if you grab that, you can get quite a shock. So you let it touch the water first, then you grab it. Um, I say, we, I got uh, one flight in the T-38. And I will say, flying in a T-38, I was, Susan still was uh, the pilot and I was in the back seat. And at one point she said, um, well, uh, do you want to do a barrel roll? I said, well, okay, let's do a barrel roll. I said, take the stick. Oh, you want me to do it? Well, okay, I'll try. And so rack it over to the right, a little more, a little more. Oh, not quite that much. And before I knew it, you know, I looked up the, out the overhead window and I saw the ocean. You know, we were upside down. I mean, it was, you know, using the, um, uh, flying the T-38 was, was like using the mouse on your computer. It's almost that easy. Uh, of course, I had one of the best pilots in the world in the front seat to make sure I didn't mess up. 
but still it was um I, I was impressed with how e just for even you know something like doing a barrel roll uh how easy it was uh then she said you want to do a loop i said well okay so she said i'll do this one so she took us into a dive and then we pulled up and she said something like three g's and okay i could feel the three g's yeah, it was getting, and she said 4Gs. And at 4Gs, I started to get this tunnel vision. I learned about the tunnel vision in training, but I didn't really think much of it. Um, I didn't, well, no, that doesn't happen. But sure enough, you know, it was 4Gs, and all of a sudden, I had this tunnel vision. And then she said 5Gs, and my vision was about like this. And I realized, you know, if this tunnel closes, I go night-night. But fortunately, we didn't go above 5Gs. And so then the, uh, the tunnel opened again. Okay, so what I'd like to show you is a little video I put together. This is first flying on the T-38, on the um, uh, KC-135. This is supposed to be a video. It looks like it's, we don't have enough bandwidth to really, you're seeing a series of images, at least that's what I'm seeing, and not the video itself. This is uh, the high G training. I will say after, you know, going to the centrifuge training, my, my reaction was, this is all it takes to get into space. You know, the maximum is three Gs. It's really not that, uh, uh, that much. You see there I am at, you know, 2.7 Gs doing the Macarena. On the second uh, run through the centrifuge, I tried to shake my head, see if I can make myself feel nauseous. Nothing. There was our T-38 flight. We also did emergency egress. Um, and, you know, we trained on that a couple of times. And we could get out of the shuttle. Um, you know, we're all suited up and with all of our communications and air hoses and, and uh, cooling hoses hooked up. We got about two minutes, which is a long time for an emergency, but that's about as fast as you could do it. And of course, the last one out is a pilot. You can see, and this is uh, about all I can do. Under other scenarios, uh, on landing, you might have to land um, on the runway and then have to rappel out. And this is showing that where they would actually jettison the overhead hatch and then you would uh, actually repel out. We also did water survival training. There. I'm sorry, this is a video, but I guess because of the bandwidth here, uh, all you're seeing is um, a series of images. At least that's all I'm seeing. And you actually, yeah, you bail out with this little raft in your, uh, with your parachute. Okay, so here's launch day. And this is inside the orbiter just before launch. And this is what it looks like right at liftoff. And I'm sure you've seen, most of you have seen these sort of videos before. And this is inside right at solid rocket motor separation. This is full flash. This is the inside of the space lab module. My experiment is this big bulky thing over here on the right. Let's see if my mouse will there. Like about five maneuvers behind. This is one of the combustion experiments, not mine. This was called LSP, uh, laminar soot processes. And then this was my experiment, the flame balls. These are little balls of flames in very, very weak hydrogen, oxygen, inert mixtures that can burn. It is a little ball of flame. Can't exist on Earth because the gravity would just cause the little balls to the rise of the top of the chamber 
uh, and extinguish. But a Russian physicist had predicted them in 1944. No one had seen them experimentally until I accidentally did in 1984 in drop tower experiments. They're also fluid mechanics experiments. I give this talk also to elementary school kids. So I say, well, in space, you have to do the same things you do on Earth. You have to brush your teeth. You have to shave. You have to exercise to keep your bones and your muscles strong. You have to wash your hair. And she said it worked well in her hair. And if it works on her hair, it'll work on anybody's hair. And I say, your parents always tell you never to play with your food, but every crew comes back with some video playing with their food. You see this guy over here. And trying to eat a, what I think is a meatball. And after about four tries, he finally gets it down. And you have to plan ahead in space. Otherwise, you can have a disaster like this. And then there was not an our experiment, another experiment, there were fish swimming. They get very confused because they want to float with their back up. And here's some views of the earth. There you can see um, the Middle East, the Red Sea. Oh, there's the Red Sea. You can see in the center of the screen and the um, Mediterranean on the right. Our mission was during the peak of the Hale-Bopp Comet. So Don Thomas actually got some beautiful pictures of the Hale-Bopp Comet setting through the Earth's atmosphere. Amazing pictures. And this is me on the ground. I was, I was the alternate payload specialist. My role was to communicate with the crew while they were doing the experiments. And then after four days in the first flight, that was the one mission that was cut short because of a fuel cell problem. And then the reflight, um, which was a full 15 day mission three months later. Then you come back to earth. I, I was on the... Uh, the shuttle landing trainer aircraft, which is a NASA Gulfstream, they put it into reverse thrust uh, to get a steep enough glide descent angle. It's almost like a helicopter approach, but that's what they have to, that's what the shuttle flies like and that's what they have to train for. Okay, and uh, so with that, uh, I would like to uh, thank the AIAA Los Angeles, Las Vegas uh, chapter for this opportunity to present uh, uh, my thoughts on this to Ken Liu in particular for inviting me and to all of you for listening. And with that, uh, I will take any questions you might have. Well, this is really amazing. <laughs> all you went through and all those uh, interesting story from, you know, a scientist, you know, the leading person and uh, the teamwork. And uh, this is a lot of insight. Very, very interesting. So anybody, if you have any, any question, please raise your hand. Yeah, sorry, previously we have some, uh, yeah, Bob has a, uh, Bob, I think you can go ahead. I think your mic is on. Ah, yes, thank you. Um, uh, thank you, uh, Professor. That uh, was uh, marvelous. Uh, and I, I enjoyed seeing the STS-94. I was, I was present there for that launch uh, on that day. Oh, that was mm -hmm. very, very impressive uh, as always. My question is that um, the shuttle missions were limited to just a few days, I think maybe 12 days at most or whatever. Mm -hmm. What is your understanding of, of the procedures now and used on the International Space Station since they have much longer durations of crew stays? Has that changed the way the, the uh, principal investigators design their experiments? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say absolutely. Because now, back then, everything was about the timeline. Because we had, you know, 15 days to do everything. And, you know, you just wanted, obviously, every investigator wanted to cram as many experiments into the limited time that was available. Now, for some experiments like combustion, 
Um, I could go into the uh, physics behind it, uh, but you can do, even with, you know, a few minutes of low gravity, you can, you can actually do a lot. So we can get a lot of tests up. Some things like crystal growth or obviously uh, anything involving, you know, growth of organisms takes a much longer time. Um, so like I say, we were, this mission was uh, mostly, let's say, material science and combustion and some fluid mechanics and, and some protein crystal growth experiments. So, but again, it was all about the timeline and, you know, that's what I told us over and over again, return to baseline. I remember they got off schedule, you know, do everything possible to return to that baseline. Because if you don't return to the baseline schedule, it's, there's a whole domino effect. Um, whereas nowadays on the, the space station that you don't even necessarily know when you're, or it may be uh, scheduled a few weeks in advance. And then because of, you know, some piece, some experiment ran over time or some equipment, you know, had to be repaired or something like that. That's scheduled. It's, it's sort of a, I will say it's, somewhat more of a relaxed environment because you have so much more time available. Um, I will also say one thing I noticed on STS-94, I mean, STS-83, I mean, because it was a 4D mission, we had two days, you know, to do all the experiments. For those of you who don't know, there was um, right after launch, they noticed some sort of a fuel cell problem, which actually probably turned out to be just a monitoring problem, not an actual fuel cell problem. But because of flight rules, they had to bring the mission down. We did have about two days to actually do experiments. So we were just frantically replanning just for, so every investigator could at least get some experiments. Because we didn't know at the time that there was going to be a reflight of the whole mission three months later. You know, at, at, at that point, we'd heard some, uh, the NASA administrator saying, they may take the out of the shuttle program, may take the attitude, you paid for your ticket, this is what you got. Uh, so we were all frantically trying to get some data uh, before that. So again, it was all about you know, replanning, you know, just to get some amount of information. And uh, we actually did get some really good data just from that, which helped us with the second mission uh, three months later. Um, let's see, what else, was there anything else I wanted to say? I think that's what I wanted to say, but it's, yeah, it's a great question about, you know, back then it was all about the timeline and the planning and a huge amount uh, of effort went into you know, setting up that timeline and then um, and then replanning it for something that none of us had ever forecasted. I will say um, um, the the NASA uh, combustion or the the NASA Lewis now NASA Glenn, but that time called NASA Lewis uh, Research Center, the the lead for uh, combustion, um, who was um, Howard Ross said, "Hey, you guys." you got to plan for contingencies if there's a short mission. And we all kind of rolled our eyes thinking, oh, there's not going to, this never had anything like a shortened mission. Uh, so you got to, you, you investigators have to decide how are you going to, um, you know, replan? How are you going to reassign time? If there's, if your facility goes down, then you say, okay, all the investigators in that facility will take the hit evenly. Or if your particular experiment goes down, then that's on you, etc. So we did a lot of, that sort of plan that isn't necessary uh, for the space station because, and if something, you know, you can do some experiments and then have some more samples flown up. If you say, hey, that was really cool. Oh, I wanted to, one thing I did want to say is that on STS-94, we had a full duration mission that I can only describe what we had sort of right in the meet, the middle of the mission when everything was going really smoothly. We worked out a few little bugs and everyone was just working at full speed and everything was going great. The 
principal investigators had what I can only refer to as a data feeding frenzy. They were just going nuts, you know, saying, hey, well, this is great. Give me another one. Give me another one. We have a little more time, you know, asking the, uh, the timeline planners, hey, is there enough, enough time for Roger to do one more experiment on this or that? You know, I say, I call it the data feeding frenzy. The other thing I would say is once you've had an experiment flown, um, you know, in space and you have all that time and such good quality of low gravity, the, there is an accelerometer system called OARE um, that was very, very sensitive, could read, you know, sub um, micro G levels. And on some of my test runs, the average G level over the test was 0 0.3 micro Gs. You know, you get spoiled really quickly when you have that much quality and that much duration of low gravity. You know, I'll go back to doing drop tower aircraft experiments again. Okay, I'll stop with that. Let's see. So there's, I see a couple of other questions. Uh, you applied to be, this is from uh, Sarah Batout. Uh, thanks for sharing your unbelievable experience. I've uh, applied to be an ESA astronaut. What was your most challenging part of the astronaut training? The intellectual, the physical, or the mental part? Um, well, certainly, it's certainly not the physical part. As I said, for in my case, it was the travel. Uh, but that wouldn't be as much of a case now because we all have, if anything changes, we all got this phone here. We can all change our flight and car and hotel reservations, you know, in the blink of an eye. Um, the, the mental part, I would say, I would think probably right now the most um, challenging part would probably be just um, because, you know, by design, I'm a scientist, and so I'm not really someone who is involved in operations. I, mean, I mentioned a few other things that I've done on the side of my hobbies, um, but you know, you just have to keep it. You have to be on the mindset of, particularly, like say, on these short duration missions. It's all about the timeline. It's all about staying. It's all about following the procedures precisely. Things that scientists are generally not necessarily the best people at. So I would say that's probably the, the challenging part: is to sort of, you know, flip your mindset to get yourself in that operational right now, what's happening right now, and what do I need to do in the next minute, the next hour, the next day, which is not the way scientists usually think. We think you know, narrowly and deeply about our thing because we're trying to understand what are we seeing and why are we seeing it and what is it telling us. Here you have to think, uh, let's say, much more uh, instantly and much more broadly. Did that, did that answer your question, Sarah? Yes, you did, thanks a lot. Thank you very much. Yeah, says has a question. Says, hey, professor, awesome presentation. Thank you. Um, I was wondering if you had any uh, recommended exercise regimens for aspiring astronauts. Now that the gyms are opening up, I need some some motivation to go out and exercise. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess what I would say is, I say, remember I said something about it helps to have a gimmick, a shtick. So just trying to say, oh, I do weightlifting, isn't going to cut it unless you're a unless you're a world champion weightlifter, which you know a few of us could be. Certainly not me. Um, but one thing I did do before uh, before the mission was I had trained and run a marathon. I would suggest that that's because that's something you could really point to as something specific, you know, because you know most people don't. It's you know if you running a marathon, believe me, is like anything else. You know, you just got to put your mind to it put in the time and almost anybody, you know, can do it unless you have, you know, particularly 
weak knees or hips or something like that. So I would think that something like that, that's really something more that you can point to, or like I said, I did um, a lot of mountaineering. Uh, and that, you know, helps out because then that's also, you talk about the operational aspects of, you know, the planning of the uh, expedition and uh, what happened and what went wrong and how did you, um, how did you overcome those obstacles? Were you successful? And if you weren't, you know, how did that affect you? Those sort of things. Uh, so I would think something like that rather than going to a gym. Now, maybe I'm biased because I've just never been a gym person. I never work out a gym. I say I, I run myself. I um, and I, I can't even run on a treadmill. Um, you know, I had to, you know, during COVID, I had to sort of find areas where there weren't too many people running so I could kind of avoid them. Um, and because I, I just, me personally, I, I just uh, can't work out a gym. So that would be my suggestion. Um, but as I say, it's always nice to have something that I, and this is true of any job, really, something that kind of makes you stand out a little bit, something identifies you. Oh, yeah, the marathon runner or the, or the mountain climber or um, something like that. Or this, like I said, the one, one uh, in Dave Brown's uh, case, the circus acrobat. Not that he was doing circus acrobatics at the time, you know, he was selected, but, you know, it was something in his background. Great. Thank you. Okay. Uh, any more questions? Yeah, obviously this is a, a short version. You know, we can see that Professor actually had a lot of experience, including the astronaut and uh, his, his uh, combustion work, uh, all the kind of thing, very professional. Uh, this is a short version. I'll give it, everybody a sense how to become an astronaut. Uh, so, okay, so if no more questions, let's thank Professor uh, <coughs> Ronnie. And uh, we can have <coughs> opportunity. Yes. I've got some more questions. Uh, I don't know how much time do we have left for yeah. the next speaker? Yeah, uh, if you want, please just uh, keep it at one question. Yeah, uh, okay. Because we do have to uh, go with uh, the next speaker though. Okay, sure. So uh, <clears throat> Dr. Uh, Ronnie, so my, this is the question I get from most of my aerospace students. Uh, so what are the exact like, cause I know like no one is perfect in terms of like physical and mental, you know, psychological uh, health. So what are the red flags basically to disqualify someone from becoming an astronaut because you know you talked you talked mm. uh mostly about you know the um education aspect of it and you know how become how do we basically be operational and all that stuff mm -hmm. so i think this is one of the most important questions a lot of people they get mm -hmm. they, mm -hmm. you know they're technically they're uh they might think they might be even dis disqualified they so they don't even dare to, uh, dare to apply mm -hmm. okay. it doesn't hurt to apply the worst that'll happen is they'll say no um, in terms of things, that's an interesting question. What would disqualify one? Well, let's see, in terms of the physical, um, I would say in, in terms of the more important aspect, in terms of the competency aspect, if you can't demonstrate that you are A, a team player, and B, can deal with an operational, what's happening right now you know, situation, then that's, um, you know, that would be disqualifying if for whatever reason you were thought of as being someone who uh, didn't meet those uh, criteria. Like I remember one time my, my um, niece, I took her on a whitewater rafting trip and, you know, she was having a lot of trouble, um, you know, doing the whitewater rafting. And, and, uh, and she said, well, you know, and she was very athletic, um, but she said, you know, well, it's like when I go climbing, you know, uh, you know, I don't have any trouble climbing, even in really difficult climbs. And I told her, look, when you're climbing, 
you can hold onto that rock and you can take as much time as you want to decide to contemplate your next move. However, when you're on the river, that rapid is coming. You have to react now. So you see the difference there? Okay. But uh, in terms of, uh, so, but in terms of the physical, you asked about the physical part. Um, I'm trying to think of what would be, because, you know, Roger Crouch, uh, at the time, you know, I was back up to him. At the time he was selected, he was 57, which at the time seemed very old because I was like 39. Now I'm 64, uh, so it doesn't seem so old anymore, of course. And, you know, he was not, you know, nothing against Roger. He was a great guy. I love Roger. But, you know, he was not an awesome physical specimen. And I'm sure he would uh, admit that, wouldn't mind me saying that. I needed finding space. You know, it's just, it's not that harsh uh, anymore. It's not like... Uh, um, it's not like it was during the Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo days. Um, I'm trying to think of what would be disqual. Obviously, if you have, you know, some sort of a noticeable heart condition, um, you know, I'm thinking about anemia, um, anything like that. One thing, as far as I can tell, is not disqualifying is any sort of motion sickness, because it's not something, it's not something you can test for. Right. Even if you people who get motion sick on airplanes or boats do not necessarily get sick in space and vice versa. They're just completely different. There's apparently no, no test to really see who's going to be susceptible to that. And virtually everybody overcomes it uh, within a few days. Actually, quite interesting that on the STS-83, you know, people were, some of the people kind of, you know, got sick. Um, and however, when they reflew the, the entire crew three months later, nobody got sick. It was like they said it was like it was like they were never not in space. They just instantly readapted, even though they were only in space the first time for um, for only four days. Three months later, it was in terms of their body adapting. It was like they'd never left space. Now you might ask, though, well, since both Roger and Greg had a chance to fly, maybe one of them should have given up their seat to me on the reflight. Uh, and I thought about that for a second. I realized, you know, they'd probably rather donate a kidney than give up their seat to me. And that turned, well, I didn't need a kidney, but uh, uh, so, uh, uh, so as I say, it was, and in fact, I, as far as I know, it's the only time in the history of the space program that exactly the same crew has flown twice. So I'm incorrect if I'm wrong about that, but at least at the time I heard somebody say that, and I, I'm not 100% sure that it's true, but I think it's the only time the same, exactly the same crew has flown in space twice. I have another question, very quick though. Uh, so sure. is, let's say, you know, someone is a uh, PhD candidate in, in a STEM field, you know, let's say aerospace engineer, um, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think that becoming an Air Force or Navy pilot is gonna help them basically to, uh, you know, go up to the, you know, top list in terms of, uh, you know, uh, becoming an astronaut, you know, because I know like you, you kind of mentioned, you don't choose that like yeah. route just because you want to be an astronaut because anyway, your odds are really, really low. But again, I think it's, mm-hmm. it's they want to see like, you yes, know, they it would... see if you're multi-talented, like, you know, how much of a uh, person you are in terms of being operational, you know, being aspirational, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. sociable, you know, in a team group work and all that stuff. Yeah. Oh, one thing I forgot to, very important, I forgot to mention, I'm sorry, glad you mentioned that. The way I would describe the whole interview process for the mission specialist program, and I presume it would be the same now, it was very much like a fraternity or sorority rush. 
So I would say if you weren't in a fraternity or sorority, that you get some kind of experience like that. That's, you know, that, that's just purely social, but you develop those, uh, those sort of skills or, or do something maybe like engineers without borders, something like that. Um, because, you know, to me, that's the way I, because as I mentioned, of these hundred people, probably 80 are qualified for the job. Uh, how are they going to pick? They're going to pick people they like. And, you know, so just like at the, you know, at the fraternity or sorority rush, you know, there's all these people coming in. There's only, you know, 15, you know, seat, or, um, beds available in the frat house. And how are you going to pick? You're going to pick people that you like. You think, especially they're going to say, well, do I think I could, one person said they're going to base it on, um, um, could I see myself going into space with this guy or this gal? I don't think that's quite the right thing. I think is, can I see myself training for many months or years with this person? Because during the mission, you know, everything is happening so quickly. You don't, you don't even have that much time for, you know, personality quirks to develop. It's really during the training where all that happens. So in any case, uh, yeah, I would definitely say though, yeah, it, they're not concerned with you being the best academician in the world or even the best pie in the world. They want you to be a generalist. So I would say definitely if you, you know, get a PhD and then become a military pilot or backseater or something like that, I think that would be a better approach. However, if your heart is in academia, obviously being in the military is not going to help you at all. And vice versa, if your goal is to be a military pilot and work your way up the ranks there, um, getting a PhD isn't going to help you. In fact, I remember in my interview group, or no, actually, uh, yeah, I remember talking to one, um, one uh, astronaut who said, you know, this, this whole um, astronaut thing, while I'm glad to be here, it really killed my military career because you're not working your way up the military ranks now. You're kind of in this outside, this little fringe thing. So you're not getting promoted to, you know, lieutenant colonel, colonel, and, you know, all those steps. You're, you're never, probably not very many of them, unless you become an administrative minister or something, or to say a few people, you know, have become like generals and such, but not that many. It's, it's actually, they told me that, it, you know, the astronaut part is really not um, for a, you know, frontline officer is really not a good career path. So there's going to be compromises any way you look at it. Thanks. Thank you so much. There's a lot of into this. I wish we have another opportunity. So uh, thank you, Professor. And uh, uh, you know, continue from the theme from Jennifer. Uh, thank you for carrying the flame, you know, carrying the fire from Michael Collins, Neil Armstrong, and Buzz Aldrin. Yes, that's what I do. I carry the flame. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. This is fantastic. We, we know much more questions, but uh, just uh, unfortunately, they. Yeah, well, people are, you can always email me. I'm easy to find. Yeah, Google thank, my name and it comes up right away. Thank you so much. Thank you. Really appreciate okay. it. Okay. Yeah. Thank, thank you, Professor. You. Yeah. Enjoy your day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So, yeah. Sorry for this, you know, because our next speaker is uh, actually, uh, she's uh, uh, joining us from Belgium, which is very late. Uh, so, uh, and the Professor uh, Ronnie also has a uh, limited uh, schedule for us. So, uh, so our next speaker is Professor uh, Dr. Sarah Batu. Uh, she's the director head radiobiology unit in Belgium Nuclear Research Center. Uh, he's an invited professor, Department of Astrophysics uh, in Kaluven, KU Leuven, uh, Belgium. He's a member of the United Nations Scientific Committee uh, on the Effect of Radiation. 
on the effect of atomic radiation and the sacred treasure of the European Radiation Research Society. So as you can see, the theme today, uh, we learned from uh, Jennifer about the story of Michael Collins. Then we move on to the person who carried the torch, uh, the astronaut, uh, Professor Ronnie, and uh, to the person who might actually also become astronaut, but she has been working on top research effort on how to protect astronaut. Uh, so, you know, we'll try to give her more time to, uh, to talk, but it's also very important for people to appreciate her, her effort and career. So I want to just uh, mention that in addition to what we're saying here, uh, he's actually awarded by the Royal Academy of Science and Arts in Belgium, uh, the prestigious uh, Western Prize of the best discovery in the field of natural scientists, uh, sciences. And not only is in a high commission, European Radiant Research Society, is also a member of two advisory committees, European Space Agency, a Human Space Flight Exploration Science Advisory Committee, and the ES, uh, European Space Science Committee. Uh, she has, uh, you know, uh, a promoter for five postdocs and the 15 PhD students, and co-author also 140 international papers. And uh, she received the award of the uh, B uh, Space Person uh, Personality of the Year. Uh, I think there's uh, it's also recounted by various magazines as well. The woman that make Belgium move. Uh, this is really a great honor uh, for for us as well. And uh, he also appeared in a science fiction novel to play uh, no play replay of the Belgian author Peter uh, Rakers about the preparation of astronauts. She plays her own character training and the teaching uh, the select crew before their space mission to Mars. Uh, so you can see that today's theme is back to the moon onto Mars. And uh, yeah, this is what I remember in 2020, she was awarded by the King and Queen of the Belgians, uh, the title woman of the year for her strong and bright engagement towards society. For more than 20 years, her lab has been investigating the impact of ionizing radiation on health through the development of better radiotherapy treatment for cancer patients and the discovery of innovative biomarkers for personalized medicine of astronaut and the patient to ensure a better risk prediction and understanding of radiation susceptibility of each individual. She also currently studying the impact of cosmic radiation on European astronauts and the Russian cosmonauts to better understand how human physiology is affected by the space radiation and how to better prepare astronauts for longer mission to the moon and Mars. Uh, as human space version is involves to ensure that astronauts remain safe, healthy, and productive for missions to the moon, to Mars, and beyond. Space radiation is recognized that the shower, uh, the showstopper. It is thus imperative to develop innovative ways to better protect astronauts and increase their radiation resistance from space radiation. This to ensure the success of human exploration and protect astronauts' health. Uh, Professor Batu went to uh, Antarctica to monitor health changes uh, in this extreme environment with high degree of isolation and confinement. That parallels most closely long duration human missions in space. So uh, without further ado, let's welcome Professor Dr. Sarah Batu. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's really a, a great honor uh, to be here today and to, uh, and to share a little bit of my research with, uh, with you with you all. So I hope you can uh, hear me well and that you can see my screen. Yes. Okay, wonderful. 
So let's uh, move on. So I'm going to, to, to speak today about radiation protection of astronauts and uh, human space exploration to the moon and, and to Mars. And uh, after the two great talks that we just had um, uh, earlier today, uh, it's really an honor to, to, to continue uh, about what we know exactly in terms of space health and the impact of uh, space missions on, on astronauts' health. And of course, since uh, 60 years of space missions, we have gathered a lot of uh, data from the first uh, orbit uh, by Yuri Gagarin in 1961. And this year we are celebrating the 60 years of uh, uh, the first uh, orbit around the Earth. Um, through the, the Skylab missions of about 10 days, the Mir missions, then uh, right now we are mainly uh, on the ISS, on the International Space Station where uh, missions are about six months to uh, one year. But what is in front of us is really the preparation of, uh, uh, of the next steps, which are uh, to go back to the moon, so to have uh, boots on the moon again, and uh, uh, eventually to, to go back, uh, to go to, to Mars. And we know all through these missions that uh, space flights have an important impact on the human body. And we will uh, see uh, a little bit more about that uh, in a few minutes. And uh, we also know that consequences uh, uh, of space flights for health and uh, behavior varies very much between astronauts. And we are also going to speak about personalized medicine for astronauts. And what we are preparing um, now is, is really future missions uh, to the moon and to Mars, where the length, the duration of the missions will be longer, that, that longer than what we are now encountering on, the, on board of the ISS, uh, the International Space Station. And these, these uh, uh, long-term missions are, uh, have got a, a name for a program, and it's the Space Gataway. And this Space Gataway is the first human spaceship to explore the solar system. It's, uh, uh, it represents the most distant uh, human space missions uh, ever attempted. And it's really the testing ground for challenges of long duration human missions uh, in deep space. And as mentioned uh, by, by, by Ken, uh, one of the main showstoppers is uh, ionizing radiation, space radiation. So I would like to, to mention, in fact, uh, the different uh, stresses and, and uh, the ranking of the stresses for long-term uh, missions to, to space. And these uh, different types of risks and stresses are uh, ranked through this uh, multilateral human research panel for exploration. So it's a kind of an international consensus of a human system risk uh, posture. And when you look at that, you, you can, uh, uh, when you look at, at the table and the ratings of the risks uh, for long-term uh, human missions, you can clearly see that uh, you, you have to focus then on, on, on the red colors. On the green colors con, uh, and, and corresponds to, to risks that are low or of very uh, low consequences. Whilst the yellow colors have uh, low to medium consequences and the red colors in this table uh, represent uh, the risks with very high consequences where you really need, uh, you have a requirement to mitigate, so to find some countermeasures. And, and I would like to, to, uh, to show and to explain basically uh, that radiation, which is the very last uh, lane, uh, line that you see on this table, is basically uh, uh, showing a red risk where we really need mitigation, so uh, ways to overcome or to countermeasure 
this, uh, this type of stress. So space radiation is uh, the number one risk to, to astronaut health beyond low, low uh, Earth uh, orbit. Uh, but first, what is low orbit? Uh, in low orbit, and in different, in, uh, uh, which is a bit different than, than uh, uh, deep space, low orbit, you mainly have electrons and protons. And so uh, you have the Van Allen uh, belts that, uh, uh, that uh, also contain and include some trapped uh, particles. And in beyond low Earth orbit, uh, you have uh, a combination of solar winds, uh, which is uh, including low energy electrons, protons and alpha particles, which uh, represent a continuous flux of uh, irradiation and uh, uh, which represent a, a low hazard, which is for us uh, specialists of radiation, uh, not such a, a, a big deal or a, a, big, a big risk. However, solar particle events, which are uh, high energy protons, which are usually uh, uh, an intermittent uh, a flux of a one or two days of uh, radiation, of very high level of radiation, and that are considered as very hazardous, are uh, a matter of uh, a high level of protection for, for, for astronauts and of concern, of course. And we will see uh, in the next slides, basically, that Inside the International Space Station, there are three parts uh, of the station that are particularly uh, protecting um, the astronauts and where the astronauts can gather in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in time of solar particle events. One of the main, most important matters uh, are the galactic cosmic rays that are composed of a, a majority of, of high energy protons, but also of alpha particles and heavy ions. And they represent really a continuous, continuous flux of radiation and they are hazardous. And uh, research is really needed in order to mitigate, to counteract the impact of galactic cosmic radiation. So not only this primary radiation that I just uh, explained, the, the types of radiation I've just explained are, are important to, uh, uh, to, uh, to mitigate, but, but also uh, inside uh, the space uh, craft, um, you also have secondary radiation that can take place. And this is, uh, uh, these are due to the interactions of primary radiation uh, with nuclei of the spacecraft material or any type of uh, molecules and atoms inside the human body. So you can really uh, 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 induce a, a myriad, a high quantity of secondary radiation, secondary particles that can uh, uh, induce even more uh, damage inside uh, the spacecraft, but also inside the human body. So as I mentioned, there are three parts inside the International Space Station that are particularly protecting the astronauts and where the astronauts uh, will shelter in case of uh, uh, solar particle events. And these are uh, the service module, but also the, the water wall, so the, the, the water container, the water reserve, and also the, the sleep station inside the ISS. So water um, is, is, uh, is uh, H2O, so it contains hydrogen and oxygen, and a lot of hydrogen, and hydrogen being a very small atom is very good to uh, stop and uh, stop most of the irradiation and the cosmic radiation. And in the sleep station, you have uh, a lot of polyethylene, 
which is a, a molecule, a long uh, polymer containing carbon as well as hydrogen. And these hydrogen atoms are also very good at stopping radiation. So for the moment, a lot of the research um, is performed on, on board of the International Space Station that you can see here. And, and, the, and this station is really critical to understand and to develop um, mitigating uh, ways for future Mars mission and to really understand uh, human health as well as uh, performance risks. And my institute, the, the Belgian Nuclear Research Center, SCKCEN, uh, performs a lot of research uh, on board of the ISS. We have, uh, for the moment, detectors uh, that uh, spend, that stay for about six months uh, on board of the ISS and then come back and we send uh, continuously new detectors uh, in order to characterize radiation inside and outside the International Space Station. We also monitor um, the, the health of the astronauts, also monitor their individual radiation sensitivity and radiation susceptibility. Um, so on, on uh, um, um, Russian cosmonauts and also on European astronauts. And we are also very much involved in what we call the um, MELISA program. And the MELISA program is the, the program for life support uh, for future mission to Mars. We have sent uh, two years ago the first bioreactor um, containing spirulina, which is a cyanobacteria that can produce oxygen and that can also produce some food. The dose of radiation on the ISS, on the International Space Station, is about 150 times higher than on the Earth. But the further we go, and as you can see here, uh, for future mission to the moon, we will have then three to 400 times higher doses of radiation than on the Earth. And even further, going to deep space, uh, to a deep space journey or to, to Mars and back would induce then, would lead to a, a dose of radiation that can be about 1,000, 1,300 times higher than on Earth. Uh, a very important endeavor, which is an international uh, endeavor, is, is to go back to the moon and to develop a kind of a moon village. Uh, the, the moon is very important because it's an archive of the Earth, Earth history. There is no magnetosphere um, and then no general atmosphere, so there is no real protection from harmful uh, space radiation as we have, uh, um, as we are protected on the Earth. So there is uh, about uh, more than 99% of cosmic radiation, which is uh, stopped by our atmosphere on the Earth and by our magnetosphere. So without this atmosphere and magnetosphere on the moon, uh, this, radiation, uh, this radiation dose is much higher. And the moon is really the springboard and testing ground uh, for future mission uh, to, to Mars. So this international moon village uh, is, is really an international endeavor in which humans and robots would work together um, and to, through operations uh, and research and other projects on the lunar surface. The distance from the Earth to the moon is about 380,000 kilometers. What is very, very important to, to study and to develop um, is concerning the extravehicular activities. And the extravehicular activities are the activities that astronauts will perform on the surface of the moon uh, when they are exploring the surface of the moon. And um, to compare on during the Apollo program, about less than 
20 extravehicular activities uh, took place for the entire Apollo program. But for the future lunar programs, uh, as they are envisaged, um, uh, about 75 lunar extravehicular activities are uh, envisaged per astronauts for their, during their six months uh, mission in an extreme and difficult environment. So there is really a need to develop these next generation of uh, spacesuit that uh, are resistant uh, against abrasion of reactive uh, chemical dust of uh, the lunar regolith, for example, and lunar uh, dust. Uh, resistance against uh, UV temperature, oxygen, uh, which have a good weight, and uh, also that are enabling uh, astronauts to walk that are flexible enough and elastic enough. So different materials are tested uh, for the moment. And to, to go to Mars and, and for future missions to, to, to Mars, uh, we encounter and we have calculated uh, of about 1,000 more uh, doses and higher doses than, than on the Earth. Uh, Mars is the most similar planet uh, to the Earth. Uh, it will help to also understand uh, whether life has existed uh, elsewhere in the universe beyond uh, the Earth. It's really a fundamental question uh, for humanity. Mars was also uh, once full of water and, and warmer, and it has a 1% of atmosphere, just also potentially a habitable environment. The distance from the Earth to Mars is about 225 millions of kilometers. Speaking now a little bit about uh, uh, towards uh, uh, precision medicine in, in astronauts, I, I would like to mention the different stresses astronauts uh, are encountering. Uh, what we call the spaceflight stressors. First, we have what we, we, what we can uh, uh, distinguish as the physical stresses. Um, there are the spaceflight physical stresses, which are microgravity uh, or the change of gravity fields. When you are uh, on the moon, you have about a sixth of a gravitational force than what you have on the Earth, or a third of gravitational force uh, on Mars. You have, of course, the radiation, cosmic radiation, as I mentioned earlier, but you also have on the surface of the moon, the lunar dust, and the lunar dust can be uh, quite uh, 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 harmful for different parts of the human body, for uh, the pulmonary system, uh, for the skin, for the eyes, for example, but also for the immune system. And then you have uh, microbes, microbes, as we will see, the, the, uh, the microbes that we have inside the body, so the microbiota, so the, the, the general microbiome that changes uh, during the mission in space, and also the, the virulence of certain viruses inside our body that can really increase in space conditions. And on top of the physical stresses, we also have the psychological stresses. Uh, linked to the isolation, to a long duration isolation, to the confinement also, but also to the distance, distance from Earth uh, that can induce some psych psychological stress. And we also have the sleep disturbances. What we have gathered as, as information right now are mainly from short-term duration missions. As you can see uh, in this graph on the left-hand side, you see that most of the missions for which we have uh, gathered data, uh, human health data, and monitored uh, human health, and um, are missions that I have uh, that are uh, of zero to, to forty days 
uh, of duration. And you can see that the longer the duration, the lower the amount of missions that have taken place. So in view of future missions to, to the moon and to Mars, uh, only a, a small percentage of the missions that have been taking place now uh, can give us some uh, important information. So uh, we still are needing quite a lot of more information uh, and there are still some kind of gaps of knowledge. What are the space health risks? Uh, first, there are some cardiovascular changes that are known, some body fluid shift that are also uh, uh, reported. We know that there is also some immune dysregulation that can happen in some astronauts. Uh, dysregulation means that uh, the immune system uh, wakes up when it should not wake up, so start to react and, and maybe some develop some type of allergies, whilst it should uh, keep uh, uh, latent. And in, on the contrary, the, the immune system can also uh, not activate instead in places of activation when, uh, for example, you have an infection that starts the uh, immune system should wake up and activate uh, itself. And sometimes it doesn't happen. So you, you speak about immune dysregulation in these cases. We also know that uh, uh, viruses can become much more virulent in some cases in some space missions. Osteoporosis is accelerated uh, in space. And we also have a muscular atrophy that can uh, also uh, lead uh, to a decrease of, of uh, muscle content and muscle, uh, uh, muscle strength. Skin is aging also faster in space. Uh, we also know that there are some space motion sickness uh, disorientation uh, that can happen in some astronauts, disturbed sense of equilibrium, some brain changes, some uh, cataract, uh, higher risk of developing cataract for astronauts, uh, food taste and food uh, taste, taste uh, changes in a space. The speed of the gut uh, peristaltism, so the gut movement uh, can also vary. Microbiome changes and kidney stones uh, can uh, be induced with a higher risk. But most of these effects are reversible when coming back uh, to Earth. They, we know also that uh, there are gender differences. Uh, so between female and male astronauts, we also know that, that uh, uh, women, for example, have a greater loss of plasma volume uh, in their blood. Um, they also respond to, to physical stress. Uh, uh, they also have a visual impairment in tracranial uh, pressure syndrome that can affect 82% uh, of men, so a higher level of men. Uh, women report uh, a higher incidence uh, of in-flight uh, space motion sickness, whilst more men experience uh, space motion sickness symptoms upon return uh, to Earth. Hearing thresholds uh, decline with age, with much, uh, but much more rapidly in male than in female astronauts. And uh, we know from extrapolated uh, data uh, from ground-based studies, uh, suggesting that women are more susceptible to radiation-induced cancer than male counterparts. And women uh, also have more risks of developing urinary tract, tract infection. When we look at the cancer uh, risk uh, variation um, expected between astronauts, we, we, we see that uh, basically for ISS uh, mission, we, we, we already see a wide variation of risks from 0.1 to about 
percent of higher risks of cancer deaths. But the, the longer the mission and the further uh, uh, missions to, to the Mars, we see that the risks is much higher, going from 2% of uh, higher risk to about 20% in some cases, with a, with a wide variation between astronauts. There is also a very well-known uh, variation of individual, inter-individual radiation uh, sensitivity between uh, individuals. So in terms of sensitivity to radiation, all humans are created equal, but some humans are more equal than others, meaning that some uh, humans will be much more radiation resistant than others. So you can see on this graph uh, under that uh, some that you have a, a Gaussian curve uh, with some astronauts and some some uh, uh, individuals being uh, very more uh, very much radiation resistance and some others that are very much uh, very much more radiation uh, um, sensitive than others. So there is really a need for uh, precision medicine of astronauts, considering all these differences, um, and need for developing biomarkers of radiation sensitivity. And my lab is, is, uh, is specialized, amongst others, in, in these type of aspects of research. We also see that radiation sensitivity varies with age and with gender. And you can see on the left-hand side, um, a table as well as a graph that shows basically that that uh, uh, in, uh, in with, with the age of less than 10 years, you have a, a factor of risk which is three times higher than in adults. So uh, children and certainly uh, embryos, fetuses are much more radiation uh, sensitive than adults. But looking at, uh, at the adult range uh, of 30 years old, uh, you see that uh, when you are even older, your radiation resistance uh, is higher. So the radiation risk decreases. So that can play a role also in the selection of future astronauts, where you can see that at the age of 50, you have half of the radiation uh, risks than uh, at the age of 30. And you also have on the right-hand side of this figure, you see that uh, the radiation risk is, is, uh, uh, is higher in female astronauts than, on, uh, than in uh, uh, male astronauts. Then to complete the, the picture, we know that uh, radiation risks also varies depending on the organs and the part of the body. So there are parts of the body that are quite sensitive to radiation. For example, uh, the lens, the eye, uh, the, the lungs, the breast, um, the gastrointestinal tract is also quite sensitive to radiation, uh, but also the bone marrow uh, and also the, the, the ovaries and the testicles are quite sensitive to radiation. So, so it's important also to, to develop the necessary means in order to protect these parts of the body uh, the best we can. Space radiation is quite complex also to understand but also complex in terms of the damage and the effects that it can induce. So it can, it's also quite different than what we encounter on Earth and what we know on Earth and what we use in terms of radiation like X-rays or gamma rays uh, for medical purposes, because it produces a densely ionizing track that can really damage in a very complex way uh, the DNA, the genetic material, and, uh, in a, in a, and that can induce some unique 
pathways uh, unique damage to biomolecules and cells and tissues. So, so there is really a need uh, for more research uh, in terms of understanding the impact on, on human health. Uh, through the study of animal and cellular models. And also more studies are needed in order to understand whether there is a potential additive or synergetic uh, impact of uh, the different, um, the combination of microgravity, radiation, lunar dust, for example, and other uh, space stressors. Um, radiation can induce, and space radiation can induce a higher risks of developing uh, cancer. This is what we call uh, radiation carcinogenesis. It can induce a higher risk of nervous system effects, of cardiovascular diseases, or other degener degenerative tissue effects. And uh, so it's, it's important to characterize and, and know the risks of these uh, potential effects that can be encountered. And this is why important also to, uh, uh, to develop personalized medicine for astronauts. So going from this current astronaut approach, which is uh, the same basic countermeasures for all astronauts, and the same type of uh, pharmaca, pharmaceutical uh, uh, molecules, for example, to personalize medicine approach for astronauts uh, using countermeasures that, we, that can vary depending on the astronauts in order to uh, develop a better and a more personalized care for the astronauts. And uh, for this type of, for the personalized medicine, you need to have the best and the appropriate biomarkers. So in terms of radiation risks, we, we can classify biomarkers uh, into different categories, biomarkers of, of exposure, biomarkers of susceptibility, of late effects and persistent effects. I'm not going to go too much into details, but there are different categories of biomarkers, cytogenetic biomarkers, epigenomic uh, modifications, DNA damage, uh, cytokines, proteomics, transcript, uh, transcription, uh, transcriptional and translational uh, approaches. And uh, my institute is working on different types of biomarkers. There are also different uh, ways to improve radiation resistance of, of astronauts by enhancing, enhancing shielding, by selecting medically uh, for the most radiation-resistant astronauts, uh, by developing, testing different types of radioprotectors, uh, by uh, developing biomarkers, as I mentioned, by decreasing metabolism of astronauts and increasing uh, uh, radiation resistance, by also developing different types of biobanking or regenerative technologies in order to be able to regenerate tissues on board for long-term uh, space missions. In my institute at the Belgian Nuclear Research Center, we are mainly working on three different aspects on the dosimetry, characterizing uh, the doses inside and outside the International Space Station, by uh, developing a life and food uh, support system. This is a, a work done by our microbiologists and by studying the impact of space on health um, in, in terms of understanding the radiobiological aspects. Here are some pictures from, uh, uh, from some of our experiments. Uh, uh, here are the, the astronauts, Belgian astronauts, Frank Dewin, attaching different types of dosimeters inside the Columbus modules in order to have uh, the best mapping of the doses of radiation and the best characterization of radiation doses 
uh, inside the modules, but also uh, on, on, the surf on the surface, uh, inside and outside here, outside the International Space Station, as you can see with detectors um, uh, uh, placed uh, outside the Columbus modules but also measuring uh, doses inside phantoms. And uh, here is a, a, a beautiful phantom inside which we put different types of detectors and that can give us an idea of the doses that would penetrate inside the body. We also study the, the, the how to develop life support systems uh, in order to produce food for long-term missions, in order to recycle uh, urine, feces, uh, organic matters. And this is what we call um, the European Space Agency MELISA uh, program, uh, which is composed of four types of compartments with bacteria and plants and that allows to uh, induce a waste liquefaction, a carbon transformation, a nitrogen transformation, and also a food and a water oxygen uh, production for the astronauts in order to recycle up to 90% of the organic matter. So for that, we have, uh, uh, for since, since the start of our space research in 2002, we have, uh, we have had about 15 flights, space flights, uh, to the International Space Station. From very simple uh, experiments performed on, on bacteria, on non-pathogenic bacteria, to very complex experiments, uh, and uh, also experiments that are performed uh, on the astronauts themselves. Here is a, an experiment that uh, flew with the SpaceX uh, A team, which is called the BioRock experiment, which is uh, the first uh, uh, linear agriculture experiment in which uh, basically we tested how bacteria can uh, um, purify from lunar uh, rocks, can purify different types of minerals, minerals that can be thereafter used for growing plants and that can be used as fertilizers. Other experiments that we are currently performing are uh, the monitoring, for example, of uh, the individual radiation sensitivity of astronauts, uh, where we basically uh, collect blood before astronauts are going to the ISS and when they come back. And we can uh, learn from these uh, sampling uh, how much damage uh, the cosmic radiation exposure has uh, induced in the space, in the blood of the astronauts. We also study uh, how much skin is impaired in a uh, uh, true uh, space mission. And why the skin? Because the, the skin is the largest uh, organ of the body. It uh, has uh, vital functions like barrier function, immune defense and protection. And it's also, uh, it also represents most frequent medical incidents uh, that are reported by astronauts, small injuries or dryness or itching and delayed wound healing. So here is uh, one of the experiments that uh, we flew on uh, skin cells. Uh, and you can see the ground control as well as the space uh, samples on the right hand side of this, of this uh, uh, slide. And you can see that the amount of damage uh, was much higher in space, in the space samples. And we also could monitor what these skin cells could uh, uh, in, uh, secrete and produce during their space flight. We also have uh, run an experiment uh, called uh, spheroids, which is growing blood vessels in space. And that was uh, flown with the SpaceX uh, 8 
in order to understand how uh, blood vessels are growing in space and, uh, and, and how sensitive these blood vessels are. So this, uh, this was uh, giving some very interesting information about the sensitive, specific sensitivity of, of blood vessels. We also run um, through the use of a random positioning machine. This is the machine that you see on the top right of this picture, different types of cell cultures uh, that we place in these machines. And here, for example, some brain cultures, some uh, neuron cultures, where you can uh, uh, understand them uh, on earth um, and, and uh, understand the, the uh, uh, synergic impact of radiation as well as microgravity, because random positioning machine is an excellent simulator of microgravity. And you can thereafter really understand how uh, this combination of radiation and uh, microgravity simulations uh, affect the neuronal network and the connections between the brain cells. We're also very and particularly interested in the microbiome and how the microbiome, so the, the gut uh, bacteria, uh, about 400, 500 grams of gut microbiopopulations are basically influencing astronauts' health. And it's very important to understand um, uh, the, the, the composition of this uh, uh, microbiome and how space, the space environment, influences this uh, microbiome. And we know that basically uh, we have a decrease of diversity of this microbiome uh, uh, along the, uh, the space flight and the longer the duration, the higher this uh, effect is. We also flew uh, earlier this year and also uh, last year uh, some uh, extreme uh, um, organisms that are called rotifers. And these, the rotifers have spent a few weeks on board of the ISS. And we studied basically how, what makes these uh, organisms so resistant, resistant uh, towards radiation. Um, we flew some uh, desiccated form that you can see on the right-hand side, desiccated form of, uh, of uh, rotifers as well as hydrated forms of rotifers. And we are now busy uh, understanding and analyzing the data. As mentioned also uh, during the introduction by Ken, I, I was also very honored to uh, go myself to Antarctica, to the Belgian Princess Elizabeth uh, station that you can see on this picture. It's uh, the only uh, zero emission station in Antarctica. And I could run there for a certain number of weeks, some immune studies, also some heart uh, cardiovascular studies on uh, the volunteers uh, in the station. And we also run uh, quite a lot of uh, uh, space analog studies using uh, bedrest, for example, the bedrest models uh, in Germany, uh, where we participate and collect quite a lot of uh, uh, data and uh, samples uh, from the volunteers that are uh, in this simulated microgravity situation. We also have a very strong program uh, in Europe called the IBER program, which is the Investigations of Biological Effects of radiation, uh, where we can uh, run different types of experiments. And we, we run uh, already twice this year some very uh, uh, interesting and long uh, radiation exposure with heavy iron um, at the GANIL, uh, which is the, the uh, uh, big accelerators in, uh, in France, in Caen, and also at the GSI. 
And some of my students uh, went also uh, twice this year to the analog astronaut training center in Poland, where they could run an isolation and a confinement uh, study uh, for a week. And we are preparing now our next round of uh, uh, students uh, to go to this uh, analog astronaut uh, training center next month in August. So in conclusion, it's very important to uh, uh, continue to better personalize the risk uh, assessment of astronauts for deep space exploration. And important to understand uh, the combination of the effects of spaceflight stressors um, and to understand the impact at the cellular level, at the whole body level, uh, and to develop also a better countermeasure for future deep space uh, mission. And let's not forget that space radiation benefits uh, patients on Earth and amongst others uh, by better understanding and better develop uh, cancer treatment, uh, which is a number one killer on Earth. So with that, I would like to just invite you, if you are interested by this type of topics, to listen to uh, the TEDx conference uh, on this matter. Uh, uh, that I gave uh, uh, not such a long time ago. And if you are interested also to read this uh, sci-fi novel, To Reply, No Reply, uh, which is a trilogy, so three books, uh, uh, as a mission to Mars of a certain uh, number of astronauts and Martianauts, and in which I was very happy to uh, uh, guide the author and to play also my own uh, character and training the astronauts before they were going to Mars. Um, if you are interested by the scientific aspects of this uh, uh, presentation, um, I just would like to invite you to uh, read some of the references and some of the publications that we have uh, published recently, and also to contact me if you are interested. And uh, recently, also the uh, European Space Agency has, has launched a recruitment and a selection campaign of astronauts uh, in which I participated, and I hope uh, also to be selected uh, in the future for, for becoming an ESA astronaut. And um, with that, I would like to finish my presentation and thank quite a, a numerous number of, of people and institutions that are uh, present here on these slides. And uh, also thank you for your attention. And if you need more information or would like to come uh, to uh, the SEKCN for an internship or for some stage, uh, just don't, don't hesitate to, to contact me. So thank you very much for your attention. And uh, I'm really open for some questions. Yeah, this is great. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. But this is amazing. And this is so important for uh, people going to space. People didn't realize. They think that all the glory uh, of astronauts, thing, but it's people like you who protect astronauts. This is very important for sustainable uh, human presence uh, in, in space. So really amazing. So we'll, we'll post your uh, uh, video, the TEDx video and uh, the uh, sci-fi uh, with your as the uh, actress for yourself. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, you're a movie star. You're a movie star. <laughs> <laughs> you should come to come here to Los Angeles. We we'll go to the uh, China Theater. We should put your hands and the on the on the floor for the mark. Thank you. Thank you yeah, very we'll, much. We'll post this and uh, along with uh, you know this your, your reference over there. So I think Bob has a question. Bob, go ahead. Yes, uh, uh, lava tubes are located on the moon, and I was wondering if your research there would indicate that we would need to build structures 
on, uh, on, on the moon or and eventually Mars, but try to site them into already existing uh, caves or in this case, lava tubes as a protection against radiation? It's an excellent question. Um, yes, lava tubes are, could, be, could be potentially extremely interesting. Um, I think uh, we are going towards a, a type of habitat that could be a combination of uh, maybe partly in, in potentially in, in this type of environment of lava tubes, but also or protected uh, with a, a thick layer of regolith. It could be also potentially interesting, but I think we are going forward to um, a type of covered uh, habitat uh, to, to the moon. Uh, and to Mars uh, in these, in order to protect against uh, space radiation. But uh, lava tubes are extremely interesting. Uh, quite a lot of research is being performed also on Earth uh, uh, in terms of isolation, but also uh, uh, to see whether these, uh, these tubes could be a, a, a good protection, uh, radiation protection, um, but also in terms of uh, um, uh, confinement. So there are quite a, quite a lot of studies performed that are quite useful also uh, to, to give some, some information, scientific information on, on Earth, on uh, what to expect and uh, how to build them uh, better inside the lava, how to build the best habitat inside the lava tube, but, but fascinating uh, type of research as well. How many meters of lunar soil regolith would be needed to have an adequate amount of shielding if you were going to cover over a surface structure? You would need you would need a few meters uh, of uh, of protection uh, at least in terms of you could use water but the pro problem is is really to uh, to get water and to to have enough water but with 10 11 meters of water you would have a, a good a very good protection but boom, pr practically this is uh, not possible uh, uh, at the day of today but I would say a few meters of, of regolith would be uh, would be enough to to uh, to protect uh, 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 extremely well. So in that, that comes, maybe lava tube could be uh, quite interesting because you would have already the protection from the, 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 the surface and you would have then to, disp to, to display and to deploy um, a, a smaller habitat inside already uh, uh, something, something that is existing. So you would not need to, to build too much. So I think this is, uh, would be the advantage of a lava tube. Uh, okay, so next, Tom. Uh, Tom, go ahead. Yes, um, one of your slides I thought said that there was more neutron exposure on the moon than in low Earth orbits. Um, why would that be? No, it's in, it's, so it's uh, if you if you uh, if you are interested in, in the composition, I think it was just uh, as an information that I that I gave. Huh? Um, so the I, I just wanted to focus in low in low Earth orbit. You you mainly have uh, electrons and 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 protons, uh, and that's why I I, uh, I mentioned uh, the Van Allen belts and the trapped uh, particles in uh, in low Earth orbit. And for the um, the uh, beyond low Earth orbit, I mentioned mainly the electrons, the protons, and the alpha particles in the solar wind, and also the high energy protons. 90% uh, in the galactic cosmic radiation and about 10% of alpha particles and also heavy ions. Um, I mentioned also the solar particle events and the, the protons, uh, the high energy protons. 
But where I mentioned some neutrons was more in the secondary uh, radiation. It's really inside uh, the, the, the spacecraft uh, that can be generated. They can be generated from uh, uh, the first irradiation. So from uh, the interaction from the primary radiation with the nuclei of the spacecraft material and, and uh, inside uh, the human body. So that's where I mentioned the neutrons inside. Yes, indeed. Excellent. I think Sina has a question. Sina, go ahead. Yeah, so uh, thanks for the wonderful talk, Dr. Batut. So I was wondering, uh, since we know that this space and you know the radiation in the space has a huge impact on the any human body fluid shift, right? So I was wondering, is there any research done uh, towards um, radiation impact on the, uh, let's say, uh, central nervous system, more specifically on the blood-brain barrier? Very interesting question as well. Um, uh, so we know that that uh, the brain is is a is a particularly plastic uh, organ, meaning that if you train the brain, you you can you can uh, manage to 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 uh, to build to develop new type of connections. Right, so neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity. Yes, the neuroplasticity. That's what yeah. I mean. Exactly, neuroplasticity. So what we have, uh, what we have seen is that uh, basically, when 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 you have a culture of neuronal cells, um, and that you place them in uh, in simulated microgravity, uh, it takes a few hours. Uh, and thanks to this neuroplasticity, it takes a few hours. But after a few hours, the neurons uh, start to manage and to to develop the same type of connection or to develop new connections uh, uh, in the space environment. So, uh, so it's, it's quite positive and quite interesting to see that, that even if an, in an, an, another environment and is in a stressful environment with, a, with the different space stressors, that basically the brain manages to, to adapt. But there are some effects and, and quite some studies are performed in terms of uh, the, the, the proportion of, of the gray matter versus the white matters. And, and, and there they seem to be some, some, some impact, long-term impacts uh, that, that don't seem to be that reversible. So, but that still needs some, uh, um, some confirmation, but it seems that the gray matter um, decreases and shrink a little bit in space. So the longer the duration of uh, the, the, the mission, the higher potentially, the higher the risk uh, for the gray matter inside uh, the brain. Right. Uh, for the blood-brain barrier, which is a very, kind of very specific and very protective uh, for, for the brain, um, not so many studies are, are, have been performed so far. So I think it still needs to, we still need more research on that particular uh, topic um, in order to understand basically if the, the, the blood-brain barrier would keep uh, the, its characteristics or would, uh, would be as uh, tight uh, or could leak in a way, in a certain way. So could, could maybe have some impact on, on, on uh, uh, in terms of uh, protecting uh, for the immune system or less protecting. So quite a lot of studies still need to be performed in order to uh, specifically address this topic of the blood-brain barrier. Um, it's still, still incomplete for the moment, as far as I'm, I know. And the last of the uh, gray matter is due to the uh space harsh radiation or it's due to the loss of gravity? 
it's uh, it's a combination but uh, it's most probably uh, it's i would say it's more more due to the microgravity uh, more than than radiation um, um, as far as far as i can i can make out i think it's going to be so it would mean it could mean that if you have a a, a moon village a moon habitat with a, a, a six of the gravitational force uh, present, maybe we might not have uh, such an impact on the, on the gray matter um, for the moon habitat or for a habitat on Mars. So it could be that that it might less be of a problem. But uh, but on the ISS, so uh, when you have long term missions in space or in deep space, that can be a, uh, that can be a, a, an important uh, aspect of research to concern and a big, an important risk. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, hello everyone. Obviously you can see there are a lot of things in this and uh, this is just a showcase to show our professor uh, can tell us uh, uh, about those and the importance of her research. So this is just the beginning. We'll continue to work with her. And uh, this is very important topic for aerospace community and the AIWA as well. As you can see, this shielding actually affect the design of spacecraft, habitat, space suit. So it's a lot of things is interrelated. So obviously it's not going to be just covered by a short talk today, but this is a beginning, you know, it was, uh, was more to come. So really appreciate and uh, professor over there in Belgium is quite late. So I uh, really appreciate her uh, staying late with, with us. So this is fantastic, really amazing. Thank you, professor, really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank it's you. our great pleasure and honor, appreciate it. For me too. Thank yes. You. Thank you. So you can see today we start from Michael Collins and then carrying the fire uh, fire flame to uh, astronaut Professor Ronnie and how to protect astronaut, uh, you know, with Sarah, with Professor Batu. Now we are the thing we're going to Mars. So this is so exciting perseverance. And then today we have the, the man uh, who who is behind the scene, who is driving the uh, uh, the, the Perseverance rover, who is the, the, the guy who is behind all those exciting uh, motion and development, discovery, uh, those things. So uh, today we are so honored to have uh, Dr. Jen Yan uh, from uh, JPL. He's a group supervisor of robotics in uh, uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory for Caltech. Uh, he's a PhD in applied mathematics and a master of mechanical engineering from the University of Iowa. After earned his Bachelor of Science in Mathematics from the National Tsinghua University in Taiwan. Uh, in 1994, he joined Army High Performance Computing Center at University of Michigan. Currently, he supervises the Robot Interfaces and Visualization Group of Mobility and the Robotic Systems Section at NASA JPL. Since joining JPL in 1998, he has been working in research and development of robotic applications for NASA's Mars mission. His te technical expertise in design, development, and operation of space robots contribute to the success of many missions. He has led the development of robot sequencing and visualization program, RSVP, for control and operation of Mars rovers and landers. Dr. Yen has assumed uh, the rover, uh, rover driver role of 2004 Spirits and Opportunity Rovers and the 12, uh, 2012 Curiosity Rover. Through operating the rovers, he has witnessed and uh, contributed greatly to the scientific discovery of the geological history of Mars in the last two decades. He is currently a, a rover planner op operating the Perseverance in the Jezero crater Mars, where scientists 
is searching for the evidence of Martian life. Uh, Dr. Yan has also broad and deep involvement with many community groups. He's an active mentor and the founder of the San Marino High School Robotics Club, where he has directed the Titanium Robotics team entering first robotic competition annually. He served in the San Marino Unified School District uh, on the governing board from 2006-2013, where he has devoted to the uh, betterment of K-12 education and uh, the community's uh, services. And uh, below you can see a chronology of uh, his uh, great career and uh, development. Uh, you know, you can uh, see yourself. And uh, I've seen him in a major newspa newspaper in Taiwan and uh, in California, United States. He was uh, praised uh, by the uh, Taiwan President Tsai uh, as a uh, you know as a very um, you know a frontier leading frontier person. You know, a Taiwanese American. Uh, that's a very uh, great uh, uh, honor. Uh, for us to have uh, Dr. Yan speak to us. Uh, he is the guy behind all the things you see on TV. So without further ado, let's welcome Dr. Chen Yan. Thank you, Ken, for uh, the kind words. Uh, let me share my screen. Go ahead. Um, um, Can you, can you see the screen? Yes. All right. So first of all, I uh, I, I was very impressed with the previous uh, talker, uh, uh, the speakers, uh, Professor Ronnie and uh, Professor uh, 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 Sarah uh, Batal. Um, the um, the subject we're dealing with in JPL is uh, far more or less complicated than uh, a human body. So. We're roboticists. Uh, we only deal with the motors and and some instruments. Uh, compared to human body, is uh, is uh, is a very uh, small case, I would say. Uh, nevertheless, uh, in the last twenty years uh, on Mars, we have uh, three rovers or, or three uh, major rovers missions, um, and um, I would like to show you today in my talk is how we actually uh, operate uh, rover on Mars. Um, so first of all, uh, I, I know uh, in the media, it, it does cover a lot of uh, uh, current event uh, with uh, perseverance and ingenuity, which is the Mars helicopter. Um, but uh, I will first give an introduction of why we choose Jezero Crater as a landing place. So I'll, I'll show a uh, short video clip to remind, uh, to start the conversation here. Uh, this is by Ken Foley as our science um, uh, lead on the uh, mission. So. I hope you can hear his talk. This flyover was produced from NASA images taken from orbit. The blue circle indicates the area the rover will likely land, with the arcing hills in the center, about 1,600 feet high and are the rim of Jezero Crater. The goal of Mars 2020 is to learn whether life ever existed on Mars. It's too cold and dry for life to exist on the Martian surface today. But after Jezero Crater formed billions of years ago, 
water filled it to form a deep lake about the same size as Lake Tahoe. Eventually, as Mars climate changed, Lake Jezero dried up and surface water disappeared from the planet. An ancient lake is a fantastic place to pursue our goal of looking for possible Martian life. On Earth, lakes are filled with living creatures. Evidence of that life is often preserved in the mud and sand deposited on the bottom of the lake. So, we use the rover's instruments to explore the rocks of the ancient lake bed. Here we can see evidence of the former lake. A canyon cutting through the crater rim was carved by a river. As the water entered the lake, it slowed and dropped the sand and mud it was carrying to form the fan-shaped delta. The white line is a path the rover might follow in its first two years, called the prime mission. During this period, we use the rover science instruments to analyze the lake sediments. After we explore the delta, we hope to investigate the shoreline of the former lake. To get there, we have to traverse around a sea of modern sand dunes. From this perspective, you can see former shorelines curving around a headland. We can picture waves in Lake Jezero beating on a sandy beach. And finally, we will press on to the crater rim. Jezero crater formed when a large object collided with Mars, excavating rocks from deep in the Martian crust, exposing them in the rim for us to study. These rocks would have been hot shortly after the impact and may have hosted hot springs. Deposits from these springs would be another target in our search for possible ancient life on Mars. Okay, uh, so so the reason we find Jezero is a, is a good place to find uh, ancient uh, sign of Martian life is because is uh, from at least from the orbital image, it looks like a, a dry lake bed. Uh, and the lake size is about uh, Lake Tahoe and have a, a sort of a river uh, coming into the, the, the lake and also have a hot spring. So those features have in our past missions often find some very interesting uh, geology and, and elements that could support life. Um, so how, do, how perseverance land on Mars? Uh, I think uh, hopefully you guys saw some of the uh, uh, video coming back from the uh, uh, landing uh, on February 18th. Uh, we called it uh, uh, seven minutes of terror. Uh, in fact, that's that's uh, that's uh, sort of a description of you spend you know a decade design and 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 figure out how each step how do we land uh, a one turn tom vehicle on Mars and then you succeed right so all those uh, uh, join is coming through. Uh, but basically, uh, we have uh, totally automate the sequence from entry, descent, uh, and landing. Uh, these steps are being tested and actually applied uh, in Curiosity rover. Uh, I don't think there would be there. There's any differences on this this mission, uh, but the. The major difference is, is in all these stages, um, we have camera 
uh, it's, it's sort of like a GoPro on the design, design stage on the rover, point up and point down. So we can have all the footage uh, to trace back to how this happened exactly. Uh, you can find this on, online. Uh, it, it's pretty exciting to me, at least. Uh, uh, and everybody uh, in JPL was, uh, was really thrilled uh, all these images come back, and then uh, we're still carrying out a lot of analysis. But basically, the we did the, the precision landing. The landing spot is within 10 meter radius of the uh, of what we plan. So this is a pretty uh, uh, pretty. I, I would say it's a, it, extreme accuracy uh, on the uh, landing a spacecraft to a, a point from three million miles away, you land within 10 meter radius. That's, uh, that's pretty uh, amazing. Um, here's the uh, uh, spacecraft after the landing, we did uh, a high res and we can you can see the parachute, back shield, the sand stage and the heat shield are all dropped in the in in the uh, uh, area in uh, where we land, and the rover itself is 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 also uh, being de detected. So let me uh, change the, the the topic now to a surface mission. So that that's that's our ours, right? So. So in the first six, eight years, we have a lot of engineering doing a lot of VNV. And then you have seven minutes, then you have eight months of uh, cruise to go from uh, Earth to Mars. And then you have seven minutes of terror to entry, descent, landing, and land the rover. Uh, what's, what's next is going to be you know, many, many days or souls of work on the surface of Mars. And uh, so how do we do that? Uh, the surface of Mars is uh, uh, the reason I put this picture there is, is, is somehow like play a video game. I, I think if you think the whole, um, whole thing, but let me, let me show you exactly, it's not exactly what we do here, but it's, it's a reminiscent of, of that. So this is how we command. Uh, what, what, we, what we do uh, command a rover, uh, we basically have uh, a, uh, a uh, I would say a gaming environment to create a virtual environment so that uh, operator like myself, uh, we're trying to operate an arm or drive a rover, uh, have a, this called virtual presence. I think this is also a concept of, uh, uh, for astronaut, for instance, they wanna do remote control, say, you know, uh, on a spacecraft and then control a robot or, or some instrument pointing and stuff in a different place. So, so you, you need to know 
what is your local uh, environment look like? And use that information, uh, we create this command sequencing and then, then send those sequence to, to Mars. So, so our, our, our operation mole is like that, but because the Mars is, uh, is too far away, it's about, um, you know, one command sequence send from Earth to Mars, uh, probably take uh, 10 to 15 second uh, minutes. Uh, and then you get back, if you can get the, the, the signal back, it will be another say 10, 15 minutes. So if we join stick the robot, then it will take probably one move and then you go, go out get a, a coffee for 20 minutes and come back then and see the result that just not operable. Right, and that kind of thing. So, so what we did is we create this virtual environment and we create, uh, we call sequence, command sequencing. And this sequence is a long, um, you can see, uh, you can think of as a computer code uh, to tell the robot do one day or two days of work. And then we send this command to Mars and, and rover will do the work and so on. After the day, day's end, uh, it will send back its information. So what sort of information we need? First, imagery, right? So, so this, is, uh, this is, for instance, when we just land, you can see this, this, uh, this area, this is, uh, this is 360 on our landing area. And you can see that the white, uh, uh, the surface have a different color that actually is the landing uh, rocket, uh, you know, cheered up a lot of the uh, surface material. And we took, this is uh, about uh, 30 plus or 40 some pictures, right? So based on these pictures, uh, we create our, our we'll, we'll understand what's the local environment look like uh, around the rover. And then use these in the picture, we can create this 3D surface around the, the rover. Um, how, how each of these little uh, images, uh, we call the stereo, stereo pair of image, meaning we take two camera point to the same place. Uh, so each of little uh, image I show, actually you have two cameras, uh, two images. Uh, these two images, then you use the triangulation, you can create the 3D surface from those image, and then you stitch everything together that give you the local uh, geometry of the, of the surface and then um, the image also have these textures. These textures give uh, uh, not only us, but also science team, scientists to understand what sort of a material you have. And based on this information, uh, we can command the rover to from point A to point B. 
right? So, so you can see that the bluish rover is our, our starting point. And then if you want to go there, because, you know, science teams say, hey, that rock is looks shiny and, and look different. Can we go there? And so my job is to drive the rover is to command, to write the command sequence and somehow to get to that point. Um, we also uh, use, we call it the simulation. Um, the, if you look at this picture, this is the, the tool we use. Uh, we developed how do we control the robot or to operate the robot. Uh, if you look carefully, there's a, like uh, a golden line. So these, these two, if you follow my um, uh, cursor there, is what we plan the rover go, the, the track. So behind the scene, when we did the command com, commands uh, or command sequence, we also use simulation to validate all those commands before we send it up to, to Mars. Um, so these, these simulation uh, is, is pretty involved, meaning it, it has a, uh, it has to reflect the, the reality, right? So once we validate it through the simulation, then we say, this is good enough and we can send it up. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I often talk to uh, people, ask me, say, you know, this on Mars, you don't have uh, 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 pedestrian and all this, um, you know, moving object basically. So uh, since the commanding the rover is uh, reminiscent to say uh, uh, driverless uh, car, so it should be fairly straightforward. Uh, turns out it's not that straightforward because you have um, some, you know, sandy area or some uh, rock can hurt the, the, the wheel. Uh, when we place the arm, there are some obstacle uh, which can, or rock, uh, if you push, push the instrument too hard, you can harm the instrument and so on. So there's a lot of different things uh, can happen. Um, so validation with simulation is a very important part of our, our uh, uh, operation. Um, the rest, I will just show you some of the uh, uh, work we did uh, since landing in a chronological order. Uh, so after we land, the first, uh, it, the, the, the machine, the, the, the robot took uh, eight months of flying in a very cold and uh, space environment. Uh, for so so first we we do is to check all the motor. Uh, this is the we go the wheel. Um, uh, then we do our first drive in SOS fourteen. Uh, it's really just a short uh, turnaround and then phase to the, the area we want to go. Uh, on the upper side, this is the rover's uh, uh, navigation camera to document the drive. On the bottom right, 
uh, is the actual simulation to to uh, pretend to drive. So, so one thing I like to uh, mention for the difference for this mission is that uh, we have uh, uh, another passenger. Uh, this is the helicopter, Mars Heli, uh, Ingenuity. So what we do first in these first two months uh, on Mars is to find a place that we can, you know, drop the, the Mars helicopter and make it uh, uh, and, and carry out its mission. Uh, another thing is we have, uh, we does have a laser uh, called chem chemical induced laser on board uh, made by uh, French uh, scientist team, science team. Uh, so we do, and, and on that instrument, we also carry a microphone. So we does have, uh, you know, if you look at the image, you can see a little dot. So before and after, uh, we also have uh, record the song from Mars. Right, that that was pretty cool because in the previous mission we don't have any microphone and, and we, we didn't hear any song back uh, for many years and then that was the first song we were just like oh really great we does also have a uh, entry descent landing we we does have a camera uh, uh, sorry a microphone on on the descent stage or. Um, um, uh, rover during the descent, uh, we does uh, sort of record some some of the event and so on. But but the the the, the voices doesn't really kind of come out uh, right. I think it's uh, due to the the nature of the the, the microphone uh, because it it has to do with the, the pressure outside and inside and so on. But that that was the first uh, first time we hear the laser, uh, so that was pretty cool. Um, and the following saw we we also does uh, exam the the arm. So this is a pretty important instrument. So because this mission, uh, the main goal is to sample uh, from Mars uh, regolith and and rocks uh, for possible, you know, uh, sign of uh, past life or current life even. Uh, so, so we examine all these instruments on the uh, turret of the arm. Um, as I said, we have, uh, uh, you know, so, so this, this mission, the robot, the very important thing is to carry out the sampling. And all the sample are going to be uh, sealed in the in a tube in a later time to bring back to Earth. So what we did is under the belly of uh, Perseverance, we have this little, I would say, a small sort of a carousel of of uh, of the tube, and then uh, a little a three D 
three degree of freedom R to be able to you know, take the, the two and seal it and, and take the, the, you know, get the sample from the arm and then, then take the image and seal it. So, so itself, it's a small robot under the belly. So that, that is the belly uh, thing we call the, the ACA. Um, uh, it's a, it's the uh, assembly of, uh, of uh, uh, sample acquisition system. So this is the, the day we dropped the cover for that underneath uh, small robot so that when we get the tube and to the later day to a, a, a fixed place, we can drop the, the sample to the ground and the next mission will pick it up and, and package it and send it back to Earth. Uh, as you can see, that's uh, that's we examined this little robot in there. Um, we have uh, uh, the total number of tubes is 40, 43, I think. Uh, then uh, this is the big, like three, three doff uh, uh, arm, little arm there. And this picture is took by the, the handheld camera on the arm. So this is how we plan to do that and then send that uh, area. Um, this is uh, from the, uh, again, from the handheld camera to see before and after. And then we also dropped a cover of the helicopter. You can see the passenger of this rover is uh, engineered the Mars helicopter is carried underneath the, the valley. Then we'll drop the, the cover. And then it will take about uh, five days to release uh, the helicopter. So we, you know, it, it took like five saw to let the camera cut off the, the, the the, from the valley and then rover drove off and take the picture there. Uh, after drop off and the helicopter is the uh, is the uh, darling of the media now. It's, uh, it has two cameras. One is for navigation. Uh, one is for its uh, it's a color camera. Um, so this 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 is from the. the uh, uh, the uh, helicopter camera to come up with this this image, and this is from the rover uh, camera to show it. So after that, we drove away about hundred meters before the camera can actually fly. And and here I like to demonstrate how how we do uh, uh, a complete the drive to a, a place that we can do science, right? So helicopter, if you, if you look at that, the helicopter is about 100 meters away. While we're waiting it to fly, uh, we also drove to the uh, rover to this area, uh, which uh, we deployed the arm to, to look at the, the rock and also test out lots of the arm instrument 
uh, that later we can use it. So this is the drive we first back out and then we take image. Um, so those image can send back to Earth later to have uh, the detailed information on that uh, under the uh, valley of the rover. And then we approach to uh, the final destination. Uh, the, the green dot here is the target area that we really wanna uh, do science. And, and at the meantime, we point to the mass can, the mass camera on top of the, the rover uh, to point to the uh, helicopter. So helicopter fly can be recorded. Uh, this is how we record it, uh, the helicopter fly. So this is our first fly, uh, which has a big uh, splash on the uh, news cycle. Uh, because this is a you know first human-made uh, object that flew in a, on a different planet or different world outside Earth. Uh, so you can see this is fly is very easy, just like go up and down. On the top and on the right side is the uh, navigation camera and um, the helicopter. Uh, and the left-hand side is from the, the rover camera mask in to point to see the fly there. Anyway, that, that day was very excited for JPL. Lots of people uh, put a lot of effort. Uh, this is six years in the making. Uh, we push it through. Uh, so this is a uh, remind me of my first time I saw the, the um, uh, Pathfinder, the little robot uh, rover called Surgeonal. Uh, that was 20 years ago, 1997, uh, July 4th. We landed this uh, uh, precursor, just like the, cam uh, the uh, Mars helicopter today. It's a, it's a we call it tech demonstration uh, is, uh, you know, it, it just, you know, make me feel it's so cool. I need to be in this place doing this project. Uh, so hopefully, you know, send uh, some people sitting in the corner of the, uh, some state, uh, look at this picture, say, yeah, this is, uh, this is, uh, uh, give the uh, aerospace uh, uh, a lot of new blood, uh, attract a lot of uh, people. So what's next? Okay, uh, then we have the second fly. Then we have uh, uh, the differences on the second fly is we're trying to point a um, uh, microphone to record the, the, the song of the second fly. Actually, we, we, we get some sound, but it's, a, it's a not very uh, clear. So because we're about 100 meters away, actually seven, seven, 70 meters away 
but we do have some, you know, good image. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I, the, the, I know you can hear, but this is a little, little noise. It's just like the engine sound on Earth. So the difference is for the second fly is is gets higher, is about ten meter higher, and so. On. Um, then we have, you know, the whole plan yeah, for the tech demonstration tech is is five flies. So the fifth fly is what I, what I indicate here. The the green dot on the right hand side picture is the the place we cut the, the airstrip, right? So the, the square there is anywhere there we, we want the helicopter to fly, uh, come back. The fifth fly is actually from the green dot to the to the uh, grayish line as I, uh, my mouse going there. This is about the 100 meter fly there. Uh, it, the fourth fly, when there and come back, the fifth fly is actually go out to just land there. Um, now, so, so we did, in the meantime, uh, as I show in the first picture, we drove to a, a science target. So what we do in the science target we placed the arm instrument on top of it. So we have a handheld camera uh, called Watson. We have another uh, camera called Sherlock. That's a, that's a uh, use the UV light to, to shine on the rock or, or, or regulars and then to detect some of the chemical uh, in the, or, or mineral in, in the rock. Uh, we can place this this handheld camera very close to the target. So, um, so all this are uh, work, which is pretty critical, because to detect life, you need to have all those uh, science observation and then being able to guess. Oh, this is uh, this could be the best we have, right? Uh, we also shoot the camera to the to the helicopter you can see. So, so uh, this just show you a, a lot of time rover has to stay there to do science. To do science, in fact, is very uh, not glamorous as uh, flying hundreds of meters and, and one shot or something. It, it just take a time to observe a target and get as many data, as much data as possible and get it back so the science team can make determination of this is a good uh, good place we can do uh, a sampling or not. Right, this involves a lot of uh, uh, high level, very accurate placement of the arm instrument uh, and so on. Um, so where, where, where we are, so I, I'd like to show this picture is because when we, uh, after the, uh, the helicopter land uh, a different place and uh, NASA provide us additional money to extend the mission 
uh, instead of just a uh, uh, seven day, 70 saw of a fly, it give us uh, saying, this is, a, this is a fantastic instrument. I mean, the helicopter ingenuity. Um, so we, we can keep doing the science mission with this instrument. So we, we just learn how to do it. So it's a, sort of like a Batman and Robin. How do we, you know, collaborate? How do we do to solve the mystery of uh, whether there's life on Mars? Um, this picture, particularly, you can see that the rover drove in this way. But on this corner right there, my I circulate that. That's the helicopter. If you blow it up in this in this picture, also. In a different angle, you can see also it sits right there. Um, all right, this is another sort of a surprise in the Jezero. Uh, in Jezero rover uh, crater, turns out there's a lot of this dust devil. Even in the top picture, you can see there's a like, I, I don't know, the, if you go to the Death Valley, you see this dust devil is more like the these small ones but we also see this is like that huge uh, uh, dust devil event the dust devil event wouldn't hurt with the rover um, but we don't want to fly um, helicopter during this this event because these cost us sort of a very uncertain uh, density on the on the atmosphere. So flying become uh, kind of dangerous. Um, so right now, as as uh, as we speak, we uh, we gradually get the the rover be more capable. Uh, we have this uh, we call the AutoNav driving. Uh, we have onboard sort of documentation of how AutoNav means the rover will make its own decision to avoid uh, obstacle. In this picture, you can see those uh, rocks, which is uh, it's not quite optical, but, but it can haul the drive, right? In this case, we actually got hauled. And then the second saw we have to, if you look at it down in the uh, this picture, so because we kind of reached the, the tilt limit, we said, and then we have to back out. Um, and, and today we have the evidence we, we can fully uh, sort of utilize the onboard autonomy for driving, we call automat. Um, so, so basically, uh, as a rover driver, we first identify some area that I definitely don't want the rover to go. This is for efficiency and uh, safety of the rover. But then the rover is going to make its own decision to how to get there. So, so this is uh, this is the onboard uh, data to display in our uh, ground tool to see how rover does things. Um, all right. Finally, where is the ingenuity? We have a, we have the, we have a nine fly to date 
the last fly is, if you look at this picture there, is the green line. Uh, it just flew across the area. And all the circle there, it means all the image it took. And we can use those images to correlate the, the high-res image. And this is very uh, important uh, path. You can see this Y line, line there is actually the rover uh, position right now, the, the, the blue dot there, um, KM, uh, KM uh, dot there is the rover location. Uh, the rover have to take, you know, uh, the safety route there because all these area uh, sand dunes is pretty hard to uh, traverse and the rover can get stuck in there. Um, so we find a way to use the uh, Batman and Robin uh, combination to utilize our uh, the helicopter to fly ahead of us and then make decision of uh, is this area are interesting to 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 science uh, team because they have color image and more close imagery right and then we can command the rover then follow up with that um, okay uh that's my presentation i think uh since we were kind of late uh but uh, you know I'll, I'll i'll just open to any question stop Yeah, this is wonderful. Uh, so I think Mike, Mike, uh, Mike has a question. Mike, go ahead. Yes, hi. Hi. I, um, Speak louder, Mike. Hi, can you hear me? Can you hear me? I can hear you. Okay. Okay, let me, um, let me try to speak up so um, everyone can hear me. Um, when you were talking about the um the driving the rover on mars and simulating it beforehand to make sure that um you get where you need to go and you don't want to wait you mentioned how you don't want to wait um you know drive it a little little bit and then go get some coffee and come back you want to plan it all out ahead of time so what i'm wondering is that sounds incredibly risky the first thing I was thinking every when I heard you say that is it seemed incredibly risky every time you do that. Um, I was wondering if, if there might have been a time you can think of where you did a a planned maneuver, and then when you got the results, it was totally different than what you had expected. Um, yes, there. Um, okay, first to answer your question. Um, to joystick a rover from from Earth uh, is just impossible, right? The, I, I would say, you know, instant feedback, it would take half an hour, uh, just round trip uh, to get to get the feedback. So, so the reason we not uh, doing that is because the limitation because the distance from Earth to Mars is just too long, too far away. 
Uh, second question, do we have like, you know, unexpected result? I would say yes, a lot, especially in, um, in the early days. Uh, we have uh, sometimes we, we I, I remember one time we create a sequence we want to go straight forward. Uh, turns out it the rover just like start well, backing up. Um, but but uh, I mean certainly our job is to keep the, keep the the vehicle safe, right? So we, after that, we did a lot of uh, more um, to, uh, to understand what the vehicle thinking, uh, since we give the more autonomy, onboard autonomy uh, to the rover. So our technique currently is to download the brain of the, of the rover and uh, every time we send out a long sequence or a, a source of work, we just read through the, the simulation, as I mentioned, uh, validation and verification of that, that sequence, which is a very, very important uh, step for us. After all, this vehicle costs, what, $2.5 billion, right? So, yeah, thank you for your question. Um, can I ask another question real quick? Yeah, go ahead. Um, you mentioned the audio, um, how you, um, how it was really cool to get audio from Mars. And it made me think, has there ever been any, like an, an experiment on Mars where you play like a song from a speaker, an analog song, and then retrieve it from a microphone at another location? to see how, how music or sound um, travels and reacts on Mars? Well, we do have a recording of the helicopter fly. Is that, that I think, qualified for playing something, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, we, we did hear that. So, so the, the microphone does record those. Uh, we also record a lot of, uh, um, like, wind blowing, uh, stuff uh, and when when we drive, actually the, the recording will help us because the, the wheel contact with the with the terrain. Um, say you drive over a big rock and then all of a sudden you slipped, so you will see that that you were heard from the, the recording, right? So those kind of thing uh, is still sort of a uh, under the investigation, how do we use this instrument to help us to better understand uh, uh, how do we operate this, this vehicle? And can I ask one more thing real quick, Ken? Okay, okay. Okay, real quick. Um, you talked a lot about ingenuity um, and I was wondering, are there any plans in the future from um, transitioning from driving rovers to flying um, helicopters? And are there any skills needed to fly helicopters uh, on Mars that you don't, that you don't have for rovers? Um, yeah, I, th I think you, we need to, since we demoed the ingenuity, already demoed uh, flying on Mars is a possibility. 
uh, unfortunately, uh, the payload on the Ingenuity, since this is tech demo, uh, doesn't really carry any instrument except a color camera. And it's on um, black and white uh, uh, navigation camera. Are you going to be flying any helicopters on Mars? Am I? Uh, <laughs> uh, we have a specialized uh, people on doing that. Um, it's it's uh, it's it's pretty much like the operate the robot, um, but we just need to coordinate with them. Actually, uh, part of our team is we call the HIE helicopter interface uh, uh, engineer uh, that has to that knows how to fly, you know, and 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 plan that and coordinate with the coordinate with all the team member to do that. Um, so far, I think NASA is indicate they want to do a mission if, a, if they can design a science mission, a science payload for a helicopter, they were they will willing to, to pony up the money doing that. Um, I don't know the, the detail at this point, but uh, it's a it's a very you know exciting um, uh, platform to to do science on, on Mars. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ken. Bye. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Uh, so, Dr. Charles E, go ahead. Uh, yes. Hi, Dr. Yan. Nice to meet you. Uh, I had worked um, at JPL for fourteen years, from eighty two to ninety six. At that time, Mars rover development was still in very primitive stage. Uh, now, not only become reality, achievement is amazing, great job. Wow. Now, I understand, uh, based on the photos taking the past from the top, you can generate 3D contours of a Mars surface. So your simulation is actually a 3D animation of the rover moving on the surface, right? And you also mentioned that in the real mission, uh, it may not exactly duplicate your simulation. Do you guys understand why? For example, uh, you want to maneuver through the rocks, but actually you kind of like hitting the rock, right? So why is that? Uh, you, you have the camera on while the, the Mars is moving, right? Uh, yeah, that's that's a good question. Uh, so so all these three D surface information is geometry, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the things, if we want to predict how the wheel and the terrain interact, uh, it you need to know the the uh, what sort of material uh, mm. underneath the wheel, uh, and that simulation or that actual interactively, you know, predict how the slip. Uh, or the soil, uh, the soil mechanics will work is actually pretty involved. We don't, you, 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 you go to place, right? That's not in the simulation, I see. Okay. That's, uh, that's in the simulation, but in a very coarse way to predict that. I see. We, we, we can only use the texture to I predict see. that. Yeah. I see. There's no way to improve it based on the experience. Um, you could improve it, uh, but 
but to to the point that you you know if you go to uh, hiking right mm-hmm. you, like humans you can use your eye to and your experiences to say hey this area is uh, is pretty slippery mm-hmm. uh, and you have a stick you can you can you can try right uh, but that's about it. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I, I, I know what you what you sort of getting to. So this is the reason I, I was mentioned I, I mentioned about uh, use the microphone to record, right? So mm-hmm. so there's some proposal from uh, MIT uh, about soil mechanics and, and mechanical engineering department they, in the early days, they can use the recording sound in the wheel to mm-hmm. decide how much slip it actually happened. Uh, but but it's never been validated uh, to the point that we willing to use that technique. I see. So we, we had several uh, Mars rover mission in the past, right? Mm-hmm. So. Did you see the improvement over so many missions? Oh yeah, uh, even though right. from the outside you look at it's the same, it's also six wheels and have an arm and so on. But internally, they we did a lot of improvement in the software side and the hardware side, right? We, we learned from the, the past experiences. I see. What can fail, right? I give you example like uh, Curiosity uh, the wheel design that, uh, you know, uh, lots of small pointing rock can poke it through. So, so you get the, the wheel broken, uh, there's a lot of cracks in the wheel. So this time we designed the wheel in a different way, right? As with a similar weight, but then, then it's much more durable, uh, at least from now. I mean, what we see. I see much better. Another question is, uh, does JPL uh, has any plan for the next step of Mars mission? Yeah, um, the next big mission is to take those sample back. Right? Oh, oh, that's a big uh, breakthrough, right? Okay, great. Thank you. Good job. Thank you. Uh, may I bring up a question to Ken? Oh, Sina, wait a second, because uh, Professor Batau is uh, very late over there. Oh, okay. So she get, and by the way, uh, uh, Dr. Charles E is very highly respected in AIWA. Uh, and uh, we just have an article uh, about him in the June newsletter. Uh, we, we recognize him for 40 years of uh, membership. He has a great accomplishment in aerospace. So please take a look at the newsletter. Uh, it's our great project honor uh, Dr. E joined us today. Uh, yes, uh, Professor Batu, go ahead. Okay, thank you very much. Absolutely great talk, fantastic achievement and a really wonderful presentation. Thank you very much. Uh, I, I enjoyed it very much. Um, I wanted to ask you what, what is the mean speed of uh, perseverance and, um, uh, and has there any parts uh, that broke down until now? And, um. and <laughs> uh. Okay, yeah, I mean, to answer your first question, uh, cross fingers, uh, we, uh, we haven't had have any major fall at this point. Um, 
but but because the the complication of the flies, the software uh, control this uh, this uh, robots, all the aspect of the robot. So we we still rolled out the our our uh, capability one step at a time, but uh, the main schedule is the next month. Uh, we're going to do our first sampling, so that that's that's the whole mission, right? So 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 our mission success criterion is to get twenty sample uh, for one Martian year. Mm -hmm. uh, so so that part is still uh, uh, coming. But to answer your first question, the, the top speed, uh, I know you probably <laughs> read a lot of the is is a turtle, right? But but uh, I I just I in my presentation I show you the auto nav. Um, in the past mission, the auto nav is uh, very slow and and uh, generate a lot of data. Uh, but this time, the, the auto nav can go uh, about um, top speed probably is the five meter uh, per 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 minute. Uh, that's that's actually pretty good speed. Wow. All right, so so we've been we've been doing this like 120 meter drive in one like two hours of drives um, with the auto nav. Uh, that's that's pretty big. Uh, yeah, it's really impressive. Yeah, and what I, is I, the next? Yeah, I also very enjoy your talk. Uh, I, I think I think you know the difference is that you deal with a much complicated system, the human body. Right? <laughs> it's different than the yeah than the equipment, but it's it's as complex, I think. But uh, and and what is the next goal now for perseverance is is to continue the sampling. Uh, yeah we, what is the next goal now? So our our next goal as I mentioned just like get first sample uh, tube to fill. And then to be able to exercise the, the whole um, ceiling and and and, um, and make the, the sample secure the sample. Mm -hmm. uh, so we are doing this cut. We call the green zone um, uh, uh, campaign. So so near the uh, helicopter fly. Uh, if you look at it, that, that area, there's a there's a, a group of the um, uh, bare rocks, if you want, from the from the from the uh, imagery. It seems to me the science team very interested. I, I don't know the detail, but I can guess that could reminisce into some sort of a you know, ancient hot spring or some sort of a mm -hmm. sedimentary layer. Mm -hmm. So our uh, our green can, uh, green zone campaign is to examine that area, especially for that that uh, pile of rocks. And also, there's a there's a mount about uh, 20, 30 feet high. Um, so they're 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 coming up with uh, some sort of a theory about uh, that could be uh, some uh, you know sedimentary area or some something 
which it could be just the helicopter can get it, but the rover cannot get it, right? Mm -hmm. So we, we're trying to find some, some um, scientific valuable target, mm -hmm. uh, but also explore the uh, possible use these new platform that helicopter to give us more information. Yeah, uh, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Okay, Sina, go ahead. The next will be uh, Randall's question. So Sina, go ahead. Okay. Thanks, Dr. Yen, for a wonderful uh, talk. So my question is, what are the main technological and technical differences between um, Perseverance, Mars Rover, and uh, the formerly deployed ones like Spirit and Opportunity and Curiosity Mars Rovers? Okay, uh, yeah, so Spirit and Opportunity, the science payload is for uh, geology, right? So, so it's it look into the, art, the, the rocks shape and maybe have uh, some APXS, which is a, a X-ray uh, shining on the material and then get back to the science uh, or the, the chemical component of those, those rocks. This is more like the, the um, uh, geologist uh, on the field, field geologist work. Uh, Curiosity has this uh, onboard uh, uh, instrumentation that you can take more detail about those chemical uh, uh, the compounds chemical because we can kind of scoop a sand or scoop uh, some rock uh, sample and put it on board, uh, shining with uh, with uh, you know uh, X ray and get the the, the spectrum. Uh, we have same we can burning, so basically burn the uh, material we want and then and smell it. Uh, so sort of like the, uh, the, the detector with your nose, right? So you can know, uh, say, you know, is there methane? So, so things like that. Uh, but the point is these instrument doesn't know um, big uh, uh, molecule, like, you know, amino acid type of thing. For this rover, the main uh, technology improvement, one is the RNF. So we use a totally different, I would say different uh, navigation software to, to, to increase our speed, probably you know, two times the speed as before. Uh, second is the sampling uh, assembly. So this little robot inside the rover has a very different um, um, operation or the uh, design component there. Um, it's, it's very complicated, still, <laughs> still uh, remain to be seen if we if we can operate that, if, if we can get it uh, in the harsh environment to do its work. And, um, and it's very, uh, very challenging, I would say. 
So that that's that's what, in my view, is a big big uh, push for the technology side. I mean, certainly we have a a lot of camera gets a lot of image back. Uh, we have the GoPro, you know, point down, and and we get a video come back. So, same. Thanks for the explanation. Uh, actually, next question by, uh, sorry, uh, Dr. Yen, do you have a few minutes for a few more questions? You mentioned it's late for you. Oh, sure, sure. Okay, sorry, sorry for this, because I got people very interested. So, Randall has a question. Randall, do you want to speak out or I read it for you? Okay, I think he probably want me to read it. Or can you see it? Can you see it in Q&A? Q&A, yeah, I, okay. If not, I'll read it for you. Yeah, the Q and A is. Oh, Next I, to the, I see. Yeah. Okay. Where? Okay, so the question is: Any plan for uh, Charter to develop more powerful robotic tools that can be used for lunar? Uh, as for the creation of lunar mobility habit. Oh, oh yes, yes, this, uh, this is a good, uh, I, th I think there's a push for a lunar mission, uh, the main mission. Uh, the precursor for main mission as uh, uh, Sarah uh, indicated, the pr precursor is, is some robot uh, mission, right? So, so there's a lot of, uh, um, collaboration robots. So, you know, to build big, big uh, habitat or excavation stuff, there's a, uh, there's a need for, um, for robot to uh, do it uh, in a collaborative way. Um, so those, those, those funding, I think is coming is also across uh, center, I think JAC has a lot of this research um, also. So JPL is work, especially our robotic section is work with the uh, with uh, JSC, with the other center like AIMS and, and doing all this. So the robotic tools I, is, I think mainly is for more autonomy, uh, meaning they have to do things uh, the, the robot has to do more like autonomous motion uh, way, right? So on the on the moon on, on the lunar side, because you know if it depends on what kind of instrument you put on the robot, you know the robot can only work in the say in the uh, lunar you know daytime or something, and that leave like ten days on on Earth has to be. If you, if you use the human joystick, it, it has to be like 10 day nonstop. So, so anyway, uh, there's a lot of issue of, uh, of building a, a you know, robot uh, assist these uh, lunar mission. Um, Yeah, that just show you a lot of great interest into uh, this uh, development, you know, related to your work. Perseverance and all, there's a bright future. Yeah. We need you, yeah, very important. Yeah. I, I see Dr. Charles is hands still up. Uh, Dr. Oh, e no, no, I'm sorry, sorry, I should, you know, sorry. 
Oh, no problem. Anytime. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Mike, I saw you raise hand briefly too. Do you have more questions? Um, yeah, hi. I, I, w I didn't think I was going to be able to ask it, but I will. Um, so I was thinking um, of a proposal. Um, how about um, parachuting a human robot on the Mars and seeing how it um, how it uh, maneuvers um, to test future human exploration rather than nipping. <laughs> rather six wheel design. You you want to change the six wheel design? Is that yeah yeah? So it'd be like more human. Has that ever been has that ever been thought of? Um, there's a lot of uh, concept. Uh, with different type of a robot. Uh, you can have a hopping robot, you can have, uh, you know, walking robot and so on. Um, but the wheeled uh, vehicle is the most uh, energy efficient. Uh, yeah, you can, there's a lot of research on these area. Um, I think you can, you can find uh, good, good papers talk about the, the from the system level um all this type of robot uh some some robot like you know more not humanoid but uh it's like you know like the insect type robot right uh we design there's a dot bar uh this is uh probably six years ago now uh robotic competition they are um they are like humanoid robot all over the place being able to do some task in the like climbing up the ladder open the door and stuff like that and putting the ball in the in the hall uh so you know i i would suggest you to look into all that uh and come up with some sort of idea um you know that that can pass all the review. This uh, it, it it would be very interesting uh, because you know use your imagination. That's the first step to, to explore some you know Mars, right? Thank yeah, you. Mike. Yeah, Mike. I think I think your my question is the last one. I, I think Mike, think about it. Actually, initially, actually, this is related to uh, Sarah's question about the speed. So. When Dr. Ian showed up today, I was I actually I was thinking maybe you were dressed up like an F1, you know, racer, you know, with the uniform, hat or something like that, you know. And Mike, think about it. Actually, Toyota is trying to help the car race on the moon. So driving the wheeled car actually has a lot of excitement. Think about it. Not necessarily just human noise. So make, maybe next time Dr. Ian will be, you know, driving this uh, race car on the moon. <laughs> You should dress up next time, you know, F1, you know, F1, yes. <laughs> that's, that's just very fast, yes. The dynamics yeah. is very, uh, very hard to predict. <laughs> I understand. I mean, that's good. You know, people kind of, you know, there's think, no, think about there's it. No, there's no way to get around that time, that time from sending a command to Mars and getting the information back. There's no real time 
there's no there's no way, way to do real time driving. There's just no way. There isn't a solution to that. Um, there are real time communications uh, to Mars, but it's very uh, very expensive. We we utilize this called deep space network, and only in a certain time window you can do that. Uh, because the Mars has its own rotation, right? So, so when the Mars is not facing the Earth, then then there's no communication, um, and and we use real time communication only occasionally to do very important thing like go and no go um, uh, things like that is very very uh, limited. I would say. The data rate is also very, very limited. Yeah, actually, Mike, uh, actually, I don't know. I think I mentioned to you, uh, actually, there was a proposal by an associate fellow, associate fellow at Wade, Mr. Dan Adamo. He was from Johnson Space Center. He was proposing to use Demos as a base. You know, it's, they call it telepresence. And from there, astronauts can control uh, the rovers on Mars more directly. So that, that's a possible, I'll forward the link to Dr. Yen and the, and the mic. I, I know that. I know, oh, you know that? Yeah, okay. I know, I know all the uh, astronauts. We'll, we'll, we'll work with the oh, okay. great, uh, great. JSE as well. You know, this is one way you can uh, have human uh, to sort of being in Mars uh, to, because go to Mars, the, the infrastructure is very, for human, uh, for, for astronaut to to go to Mars, um, uh, it's expensive, and then uh, when when you come back, right, you still need to have the um, ascending rocket and all that. You have to bring all that in, and you have to either manufacture some uh, film. Uh, locally, or you have to bring it with you. So there, there, there are system level consideration of that. Okay. That's, yeah, it, that's, you're right. I mean, that proposal also because the energy consideration from rocket equation, those kind of things. Yeah, okay, thank you so much. I think Dr. Yen is uh, busy, so uh, we wish we can uh, have another great opportunity in the future. So thank you so much, Dr. Yen, it's so impressive, really amazing. People are so excited. Talk. Excellent talk. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Bye-bye. Great job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for all the speakers today, and thank you for your uh, all your attendance. So we look forward to see you next time in the AIWA uh, Los Angeles Las Vegas section event. Uh, so stay tuned. Have a great Saturday and weekend. Um, uh, see you next time. Thank okay. you. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Charles. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, Thank you, Mike. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Bob.